We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Greetings and welcome to the Gator Nation football podcast. What is up, everyone? My name is Alan Williams, right here with James DiVirgilio, the man with the butteriest voice in all of podcasting. What a win over Vanderbilt. Absolute domination. If you're in the stadium, you're probably enjoying it. Beautiful weather in the swamp. James, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to getting to some of the topics we have on today's podcast. Uh, we'll break down the different things we did on defense as well as on offense. A lot of these things, Alan, you and I have been calling for week after week after week, and some of them happened, and that's pretty exciting stuff. The Vanderbilt game exceeded both our expectations on the score lines. We'll talk about if it exceeded our expectations on the film analysis. So maybe kind of surprisingly, Alan, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about post this Vanderbilt game. I always wonder heading into these games, what will we do on Monday if this game looks like this or if this is sort of something straightforward. But the beauty of football is it almost is never that way. True. There's always something to look at and talk about. And the Gators have been very interesting over the past several years. Uh, There's obviously a lot of questions looming on the horizon, too. Like, for example, what are we going to do if we have Emery, Franks, and Trask next year? We're not going to get into that kind of stuff today. We get a lot of questions about that. We will get into that. But our philosophy is sort of, let's wait until we get to that point when all three guys are on the roster to talk about it. We could speculate all day. It's sort of a wasted function. If we come to it, we will spend plenty of time covering that thing. It will be a huge story, the story. There will be a tremendous amount of stuff to talk about. All right. If you enjoy the content, you like this podcast, you're a fan of the Gator Nation football podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, become a patron on Patreon, where you too can give us a dono. All sorts of different donos to match your size, small, medium, large, XL, hundo bomb. Love our hundo bombs. Uh, we had some some new large donos come in. We had Sean Williams, Glenn Merritt, David Waters. Welcome, all of you. Welcome aboard. Great to have you. And then George Lee coming in with a small dono. So great to have new donos each week. Appreciate that. Uh, Alan and I obviously are tremendously uh, thankful and you know just excited to have all of you on board supporting us. And then 
Alexander Leventhal, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, he's fun to get into conversations with. Very sharp guy. We go back and forth sometimes on Facebook Messenger, Alan. True. About all sorts of great topics. We don't always agree. He's is, a great thinker. I love hearing his perspective on things. So. Yeah, which is wonderful. And he's sitting on the throne. So you must always engage the person on the throne. Uh, the way this works, if you're new to the show, the person who gives the most or the highest dono per month is on the throne. They get all sorts of benefits, and those benefits basically are their name gets mentioned every single week. They get built up like a legend that they are, and they gain a lot of respect throughout the podcast listener base of this very podcast. Okay, Alan, opening thoughts here. Well, first, let me also want to say a shout out to one Claudia Seitz for hooking me up with a ticket this Saturday. So thank you for that. Very much enjoyed being in the swamp. Let me ask you this. I'm going to turn the tables here. Was this win impressive? considering how, how bad Vandy was with a third-string quarterback. After watching them, were you more impressed or just do we have to just lament how bad Vandy is? Well, we accurately said on the podcast during our very short breakdown, which one JT Raymond texted us and was a little frustrated we didn't talk more about Vanderbilt, to which I replied, we said what needed to be said. They're historically bad on both offense and defense. That was true. However, Alan, this was still... An impressive win. We talk a lot about style. We talk a lot about what things look like, how plays look on film. This was impressive for a lot of reasons, especially in the third quarter when we really dialed it up. We ran a lot of clean um, plays on offense and defense. Those are things you want to see as the season progresses. Uh, we did not have a hangover after a tough loss like we did last year. Uh, we obviously struggled with Vanderbilt last year, different Vanderbilt team than this year's team for sure. But we had no such struggle in this game. We dominated across the board. We didn't score a lot of points in the first half, which was a little sloppy. But then we really right. got it going, which is what you want to see. A little strange in the first half, for sure. Yeah, strange stuff going on, moving the ball up and down the field. But this was an impressive win. And, and again, we're going to talk about why You know, I think it was impressive when we get into it. But this was impressive. You don't want to take too much from the blowout, like, oh, look at us. We're amazing. But you can take things with how the coaches handled the roster. And that's something we, of course, follow on this podcast very closely. There were some marked differences in this game. In fact, there are some things we've seen, Alan, for the first time ever in the Dan Mullen era. Yeah, I was really appreciative of how well the young guys played. And this is an opportunity, especially even if they're redshirting, you know, they have a chance to play in four games. This is probably one of them that the coaches wrote down that, hey, if the season is going like we think it will, they should get a chance to get an extended playing time. And all those guys played well. This is even though this is a very bad Vanderbilt team, it's not necessarily an awful FCS team. You still have to get out there and compete. And if you're bad, a guy like Keyshawn Vaughn will show you up. So there's a little bit to be had, you know, by seeing all these guys. We didn't have all of our top line guys, obviously, no Zuniga. Some great performances from guys like Diabate and other freshmen. We'll get into that. But yeah, it's nice to see the basically the full breadth of our roster, which is pretty slim. We're missing so many guys. We obviously do not have a full complement of scholarship players, but almost everybody on the roster contributes, which is funny uh, because of how thin the roster is. So uh, you that's what you want to do at home, Vanderbilt. You want to come out and smoke them, which we did. Yeah, Gators win 56 nothing. We said when Dan Mullen got hired that this is what Dan Mullen and Urban Meyer both do really well, is they trounce the teams you should trounce. 
That's a staple of the Dan Mullen 1.0 offense. It's really a staple of what any good coach does, Alan, but especially sort of the Urban Meyer system. You can do things against inferior teams that don't work against better teams, um, but don't take that for granted. A lot of being a successful football coach at this level is beating up on the teams you should beat up on and not having close games against overmatched opponents. That's good. That's one thing you want to take away that's positive. Alan, you had the Gators winning 35-13. I had 42-10. Of course, we both were undershooting what went on. We we covered the spread easily. We probably could have scored 74, 80 points in this game. Kyle Trask said so himself afterwards. So a lot to like. We don't want to make too much of the overmatched opponent, but we are going to focus on, like we said, some of the things we did differently. Let's start with our offensive game plan, Alan. Well, yeah, we were really interesting that we continued to attack them. You, you didn't see a lot of running the ball. We thought maybe they're going to come out and run the ball because Vanderbilt's a little overmatched, but we still got out there and attacked them. Not a lot of running plays, not a lot of carries for P. Ryan or Pierce or anyone, really. Uh, very aggressive. You know, and that's interesting. That kind of my score was baked into the potential emotional hangover or just sleepiness of a noon kick. Um, but the coaches didn't allow for that in part because of how aggressive we were coming out on offense. And this is what we mentioned, you know, once upon a time with Trask is when you have technical skills, those carry over the most technical skills don't require emotion. They're by their very definition skills that are repeatable. And that's a huge, huge benefit of having a quarterback that can do what we do. You saw in the first half some uncharacteristic sloppiness. Trask had a couple of balls a little bit off the mark. Pitts seemed to be getting out of the blocks a little slowly. So we were a little sluggish. And then, of course, in the second half, we really turned this on. A couple of interesting things occurred during the week, Alan. Blaise transferred uh, offensive lineman who was playing much maligned by this podcast. Was was playing and struggling, I think, for a lot of these games. Was a starter, was a young guy, redshirt freshman into the transfer portal, which brings up opportunities for others. We're going to talk about what that means for the program as a whole, losing a guy like Blesch. I certainly hope that our podcast didn't leave him to transfer, as some of you (laughs) joked and alluded to. While we are critical of people's play, of course, we wish all of these players success. In then comes a true freshman, Allen, number 77, uh, Ethan White. He was one of the lowest-rated prospects Florida had signed. He was about 50 pounds overweight when he came into camp. And he's done a rather tremendous job losing weight. Right, that's the big story. Shape. As you see pictures of him before and after, he looks like a completely different guy. A total transformation for him already in the program. I mean, that's, I think, a credit to his commitment and the coaching staff, the strength and training department of getting him up to speed so quickly, really. And the word on the street although we can't confirm this from Mullen's mouth, is that Heggie had a concussion. So we start the game off, and I look at you, Alan, we're sitting together, and I say, what, what, what's going on? Why is White in the game, and where is Heggie? White was playing basically for Heggie. You had Guraj starting, which he's been starting at, at that left guard spot. And then you got White getting his first start as a freshman, and he played very, very well. Both right. White and Guraj played extremely well uh, on film. They, they were really, really solid. So nice job by him, very overmatched. Again, White... You know, although he's not very talented, he was a three-star, he's still going against even less talented Vanderbilt defenders on the other end, so he should have been able to do well. Right. But this was a major improvement from where he started in this program as a true freshman. No mental mistakes, no false starts, no holding penalties. Regardless of who you're playing, that was good. And we were not afraid to pass block 
you know, 40 passing attempts in this game, utilizing two young guys. Our line is incredibly young right now, Alan, and we have right. some issues. But that was a positive coming out of what could have been potentially a negative For sure. in this Vanderbilt game. And that's why it's so hard to rate offensive linemen sometimes out of high school. You got this really big kid, obviously needs to lose some weight. Can he do it? Obviously, in this case, he could. So if I've identified that he probably can do that, he's probably worth more than his rating would indicate. Now, again, you don't want to fill your roster with those guys, but if you can identify a few of those guys, that can really pay dividends for you. Okay, James, what was Vandy's game plan coming in? What were they trying to do, at least? We talked about they would really do their best to try to slow us down, to kind of bend but don't break, and they did that. They played a ton of eight-man drop coverage, so they would frequently rush only three. They'd put eight guys in coverage. They'd double-team certain people. They did everything they could to try to make the window small. As we've chronicled all year long, that's a really bad strategy against Kyle Trask. He will pick you apart in any kind of zone defense. You basically cannot do it against him. If I'm coaching Vandy, I'm still going to try to play a lot of cover two man and live with the results because I think you have to. I think, to me, that's poor coaching on them. It probably didn't matter what they were going to do. They don't have the talent to match up. So they thought maybe we'll have them make some self-inflicted mistakes, which we did. did. Yeah, We did, uh, but certainly not enough of them. What we did right in this game, Alan, of course, there's plenty of things. We had 33 first downs. That's a ton. ton of first downs. 18 passing, 12 rushing, 560 yards of offense. 420 passing, 150 rushing. 420 passing, 150 rushing, which means, Alan, we had 40 passing attempts and 29 rushes. That is a 60-40 pass-run balance. Right, and that's especially in a game where you're leading the entire time. So normally in a game like this, you would have maybe run almost the entire second half, but we stayed very aggressive. I I think part of this is that Kyle Trask still doesn't have a ton of reps in playing football of any kind. So I was kind of pleased that the coaches gave him a shot. Now there's a little talk about, was he in there too long? But I like the aggressiveness. I like the run pass balance. Now this is a tight game would have been even higher. I think obviously it just shows their commitment to doing what we're doing well right now, which I want to continue to give them credit for. Yeah. This is the most lopsided pass run. We'll call it pass run because we're passing more than running balance so to speak or allocation that we've seen and I love it I've been calling for it each and every week 60-40 I feel like is right where this team needs to be it takes advantage of the skill set that we have you wouldn't do this every year I think as a coach you have to be flexible to your personnel but certainly this year passing more than running is good for us and and I thought Vanderbilt couldn't stop it it doesn't matter what they're doing if they're dropping eight and they can't stop it you just keep passing the ball into eight defenders and I was really really happy with that we ran a lot of five wide sets we've talked a lot about this podcast from the beginning I think this is a great sign for me uh, to see. To see this is really out of you know Dan or Coach Mullen's comfort zone here, Alan. This is not something that's been a staple of his offense. He would utilize five wide once or twice a game. A lot of times it was to get a quarterback run or a slant pattern. That is changing. We've really started to run uh, some better stuff out of this. There's still even more that we can do. And even on one play in this game where Trask ran for a touchdown, we ran a mesh route. Now we talked about a mesh route earlier. So mesh routes. You'll have, let's say, an outside receiver and a slot receiver on the right side, and they're going to run about six-yard uh, middle routes, dig routes, and they're going to pass each other. So in man-to-man defense, you're kind of getting a rub right at the middle of the field, and the quarterback can make that read and throw it either to the left flat or the right flat. I have never seen us run a true mesh pattern on film in the two years we've evaluated. Damn, we've talked about it every game. We should be running more mesh routes. We're really good with this. We did it, and because they were in man, they stayed with pits, 
which was an easy look for for um, for Trask. He actually got doubled on his right measure. On the left, he had one-on-one with Pitts. That guy ran off. Trask steps up, 10 yards in the end zone. If that guy had peeled off to stay in zone and look at Trask, he'd have thrown it to Pitts. would have been a touchdown. That was fantastic. So we saw right. some things. Of course, we're biased, right? We've been calling for these things. But they happened, and that's wonderful. And I think that's excellent coaching, even though it's late in the season, even if it may be a day late and a dollar short. I think that on the offensive side of the ball, Every game I've seen a progression of, of, of Dan leaning more and more into the passing offense, leaning more and more into what we're good at and not worrying so much about having to just run the ball for the sake of running it. I love it. I loved it. It's one of the reasons why I'm high on what happened in this game. Right. So it's interesting too the personnel we use often. It's not actually five receivers, right? You'll see Pirine motion out of the backfield to go wide, hopefully drawing a cornerback for him who's you know, that's what you're hoping that they'll allocate a cornerback to your running back. And then Kyle Pitts or maybe Kroll, but mostly Pitts, you know, line up in the slot or actually they deploy him all over the place. And that's a very interesting alignment where if the defense really doesn't, is doing something you don't like, you can theoretically bring all those people back and run the ball. And, you know, I don't know that that's what we're planning on doing ever, but that's the kind of way that Dan likes to deploy these guys. And you do have a guy in Pitts and a guy in Piran. It's not Piran is an excellent pass catcher and route runner for a running back. So at least at the college level, so he can he's a credible guy out there that you have to guard. So it's interesting to see us utilize that even despite our wealth of wide receiver talent, because that's the way Dan would still like to use his personnel to flex you out and make you be honest, not to put as many defensive backs out on the field because we still have a tight end and a running back on the field. Correct. And typically you can wind up winning with those battles. I think the next iteration of that, Alan, is you have to ask yourself questions. Well, if my five wide receivers create a mismatch where my fifth wide receiver is much better than their fifth DB, and a lot of college teams don't play four or five DB. So if you're going to put a guy in the field that doesn't play a lot, that might be better than having Kroll go against a linebacker. And I think right. that's the more you evolve into that theory, the further you'll get. And I think we're seeing him lean more into that at least for this season, which is good. We also saw something we hadn't seen before. We had called for running these down the field, natural sort of pick or rub routes. The Grimes touchdown was just that. You had Pitts on the inside of him, Grimes on the outside. Pitts runs an outside release go. Grimes runs an inside release hitch. And what happens is Grimes runs, I mean, uh, Pitts runs into Grimes' man, Allen, about 10 yards down the field naturally, pushes him off. Trast was a perfectly timed hitch route. Grimes turns to the field 70 yards later, touchdown. We've been begging for those kind of routes. Those will work even against elite teams if you right. get the timing right. Trask has proven to get the timing really, really right on his delivery. I think we should be running almost all of our pass, or pass patterns against man in routes like those that. Those are really great. Those and are super crucial. And that's the first time, again, we've seen that on film. So a lot of new stuff came out against this Vanderbilt team. Right. And you see Grimes is a great guy to catch those curls on those in that particular combo. Because you saw him get up the field very quickly have the power to not get shoved out of bounds and obviously you know one play touchdown there uh yeah that was pretty cool let's talk about Emery really quick he was pretty effective in this game when he was in there now we talked a lot about the times that he like when he comes in we struggle afterward so we're going to get to that in a second but when he was in there the wrinkle that I loved was having him and Kadarius Tony back there that creates a really distinct problem for a defense. Now, you can't build a whole offense out of this, but them coming in there, 
catching you doing different things, right? So you ran a counter one time, maybe you run an option the next time. With a guy as elusive as Tony and you know, pair him with Emery, who's you know a plus runner himself. That's really difficult to, for a defense to stop, especially in a down a distance where you need some yardage and maybe they're defending you in a way that prevents you from doing what you normally like to do, to throw a curveball at them. Uh, we're going to get to the overall philosophy, but I really like the Emery plus Kadarius Tony package together. Yeah, that's the right way to go. I think we'll just jump into Emery now and then kind of backtrack in a second. But you know, he goes two for three for 47 yards passing, five carries for 34 yards, and then three rushing touchdowns, which is the kind of day you want your backup quarterback to have against Vanderbilt. You hit the key thing. I think both of us really like the fact that when you use Emery, pairing him up with Tony is the is the exact right pairing. And what are you really running there, Alan? You're running the Wildcat. That's what sure. you're running. And that's very effective because both of those guys are quick. Tony's incredibly explosive to where the, defen- the defensive team has to commit a guy to him. So in reality, against a good team, he just becomes a decoy. But if Emery can throw even halfway competently at all, it opens things up. That then raises the question of the usage in the first half of Emory. Okay, do I like it now that I'm saying I liked them using it with, with Emory and, and Tony? No, I still don't like it. Uh, I, I want to I peel back the onion of why we're doing it where we do it. I don't like it. Again, I would not do it. You're seeing Emory come in generally on the plus 40. Yeah, about the 40-yard line. line, yeah. And if you're wondering, well, why, why don't we just use him in the red zone or why aren't we using him there? Well, the reason you're using him on the plus 40 is it opens up your best sort of home run play. So you kind of keep showing teams, we're going to come into the 40, or it's a handoff to Tony, or it's a keeper by Emery, or it's a handoff to Tony, or it's a keeper by Emery, or it's a jet sweep by somebody else. And then eventually a team's going to load up on you, and you're going to fake that and score a touchdown. And because you don't trust maybe Emery doesn't get a lot of reps yet, no knock on him, in the red zone where things are much tighter, windows are much smaller, you make these throws very simple. It's either like a touchdown or an incomplete pass. Right. And so that's the kind of spot on the field you like it. The reason I don't like it, Alan, as I've said many times before, and I'll just leave this here from my end, a lot of times Trask has gotten us to the 40-yard line with a couple of good throws. He's in rhythm. He's feeling it. And you kind of just arbitrarily bring in Emery. And Emery might gain some yards and do some things, but it's definitely affecting Trask. Like, basically, every time this happens, Trask makes his worst plays of the season. We have too much data on this now. It's not just a one-time occurrence. Almost every bad Trask play his comes right after an Emory. Yeah, it's either the first situation. or second play after. And that, that's causation and correlation, right? Sometimes you could just see causation and make up correlation. There's both. The, the data is overwhelmingly evident that this is not a good idea for Trask. And part of being a good coach is to manage your quarterback's mental state. And I'm not saying he's like discouraged, but whatever happens, Alan, it's not good. And so I think you have to recognize this is affecting Trask in a negative way. Half of his picks on this season have come after Emery's come in, and he's done things he doesn't normally do. So Which is weird. That's weird. And again, you can maybe coach that, work on that, but why even take the risk at this part of the season? Emery and Tony package will also be great, even if a team knows you're running on the eight or nine yard line. All right. So the reason I think they put Emery in on the 40, like you said, it's a very great spot on the field for like something downfield, potentially. Also, it's the softest part of the field. Right, you're not in danger of being in bad field position. Often, that's the place you're most likely to go for it on fourth down because you're too far away for a field goal. You know, you're, you know, you're don't want to punt it from there, and so you have an opportunity if something goes bad to still pick up a first down yardage. So I think that's they feel like it's a really soft spot in the field. That's why he comes in almost the same place every time. Gives you the most options, decreases the negativity if he does something wrong there. 
um, which is why it was so confusing against LSU when they brought him in on our own 25. That's a bad spot on the field to put him in unless he's just shredding things because if you go three and out like we did and have to punt, you're giving the other team good field position. Uh, anything else you want to note that we did well? Yeah, the East-West passing game, which gets maligned a lot by me, and, and I want to highlight both sides. I think sometimes it's important to make sure that my my point gets conveyed correctly because you know on the podcast you'll hear one criticism, but there's a full strategy behind what's going on. The East-West passing game works exceptionally well against inferior opponents. That's what it does, and it, you saw it against Vanderbilt. We had about eight first downs come on eight or nine yards, simple little bubble screen plays that we're blocking. The problem is, as we noted against Georgia, which I think we tried that one time, you cannot get that against elite teams. You literally just can't get it. And so for me, I say, I don't really love building a large part of my offensive strategy, Alan, on crushing teams that aren't good at stopping me. I need to beat the best teams. So that's why you'll hear me talk a lot about, let's let's reduce that in the playbook. You can run that game plan wise for the Vanderbilts of the world in a week, and that's easy to practice. That's not a problem. It should not be a core part of your philosophy to move the ball because you just won't use it against the better teams. But you saw how effective it was against right. Vanderbilt. It is a reason why Mullins teams are able to crush these teams. When you can throw a super safe east-west screen pass for 10 yards, that's like cheap. Right. Well, it reduces risk in a game like that against Vanderbilt. We, we would like to run the ball, but we can't do it effectively for the most part. So you hear people talk about this as kind of an extended run game or – something of that nature. Bad things can still happen on it, obviously, but it's less than if you're taking like a seven-step drop and trying to get a deep route down the field. So I think that's, you know, Mullen, at least in this type of offense, which, you know, we're passing a lot more than he's probably comfortable with. He's baking in a little bit more of the conservative, let's get some yards, let's pick up some first down still, which is good. You want to put some easy stuff out there for your players. We talked about how difficult it was against Georgia. We were making... Every play was difficult. That's not the idea, right? You still want to be able to attack teams at the highest level. But I don't mind it here against Vanderbilt. But your point is well taken that if that's what you do all the time, it's not going to serve you well in the, in the most high leverage games and high leverage moments. Right. And, I, and to be clear, I, I like it a lot in this game. I think game by game, you take what's the easiest path to an average yards per play. And if you can gain nine and a half yards per play throwing bubble screens, you can do it every play, and I'll love it. And I think that's what we're trying to address from the podcast is that these tactical situations are fluid, but you have a meta strategy, Alan, where you say, how can I win against the best teams? What are things I know just typically aren't ever going to work against the best team in general? And you kind of say preseason, these are important things to have in my toolkit. However, I can't really expect these to be things that are going to work against elite teams. They used to work. They once worked under Urban Meyer. They don't work anymore. Maybe one of the best things about Trask at quarterback is you're seeing Mullen really start to experiment now. That could make him a better football coach. A couple other things that went right. We had an incredible third quarter scoring 28 points, which was just fantastic, especially at home against an overmatched opponent. Put him out of the game, get a nice win. Uh, So overall, on offense, very, very few things to even remotely mention. Here are the things to mention. On third down, we were bizarrely three for nine. Right, we didn't face a lot of third downs, obviously, but when we did, we weren't super effective at it. And we were a little unlucky in a couple of those, but still, three for nine. Reason for concern? Not really. Just happened. DeLance, reason for concern. Right. So he whiffed multiple blocks in this game. In fact, he was really the only lineman in this game, Alan, to miss blocks. 
That's the first time I've said that all year too. Typically Buchanan throws a few in there. Stone almost always whiffs one. He was the only one on that fourth down and two pass play to Pirine, which we'll talk about later in coaching corner. Delance totally whiffs his block, which causes Trask to slide across his body to make that throw. There's some other spots where he missed as well. Good news, bad news. Good news, no one was ever counting on Delance being your right tackle. That was never supposed to happen. That's the that's sort of the, you know, the good news was he was a band-aid, right? Bad news, good news, bad news, he struggles, good news. Help is on the way. He will not be, probably at all, Alan, a starting offensive lineman next season. Well, we would because, hope. Yeah, well, I mean, because I, we've got two guys waiting in the wings that are tackles, yes. that are young and talented, that are getting reps, that are getting better. So he's a band-aid. So I don't want to malign DeLance too much. He's not. He's, he's doing all he can right now. He's just not good enough to play at this level. So you never want to dog a guy for that. But he is really... Like if we were to play in the SEC championship game at Georgia, someone miraculously lost two games... You can't start DeLance. You can't start him there anymore. I feel like you gotta you gotta look at other guys. Well, I said a couple weeks ago that our best path forward was finding another right guard so that you could play Heggie at left guard or, you know, flip those two, moving Stone Forsyth to right tackle and letting Garage play left tackle, which is his maybe most natural position. I don't think it's gonna matter the rest of the season, potentially, like you said, unless something really goes wrong. Uh, for Georgia. Um, but that was the idea. And, you know, Ethan White playing there, I guess, is maybe what they were hoping Chris Bleich would eventually end up being so they could remove DeLance from, you know, the starting unit. Um, yeah, you're right. He's just not talented en- enough to play there at a high level. And it's, again, it's unfortunate that the offensive line held us back in the key moments of our season. But you know, that's that's a problem that's been with our program for a while now. Hopefully we're on route to fixing it, but it, it's not ever a thing that's a quick fix. So it's cool to see Ethan White come in and play well in his first start, which is a tall task for anybody. Correct. All right. Attention to detail issues we struggled with in the first half really only. A couple of potential wrong routes. So the, the interception by Kyle Trask in the beginning, it's going to be impossible for us to know. As far as I've seen Monday afternoon as we're recording this podcast, there were no commentary by either Trask or Mullen about the pick. A lot of times they may talk about that. Couldn't You're find talking about the pick in the first half. The pick in the first half where he throws, where Pitts runs like a skinny post and Trask throws a dig route, right? Dig route's an in route, so you go 10, 15, and in. It's impossible for us to know who's it on, and I'll tell you what complicates the matter. As soon as Trask throws the ball, he clearly expected Pitts to run a dig route clearly he was you know animated about it but then Mullen spent at least a good minute one-on-one talking with Trask on the sideline and there were gestures and animated hand motions leading me to believe that maybe maybe Trask made the wrong read or maybe in the third category maybe Pitts ran the wrong route but because of the depth of the safety it probably wasn't the right route to throw regardless uh that wouldn't have been a very successful play overall maybe the, I don't think the ball gets intercepted so maybe Dan's saying, hey, he ran the wrong route, but even if he had, maybe don't throw it into that coverage in that spot. So like you said, it's possible, impossible to know, but definitely mistake there by one or both of them. Yeah, definitely a detail-oriented thing either way. You know, That's going to happen even in the NFL. That'll happen right. with receivers and quarterbacks. But in the NFL, you're running a lot of option routes. Now, look, it's very possible that they gave Pitts an option route. They said you can run a dig or a post. And so he gets to the top of his route and he decides whether to run a dig or a post and they're on a different page. These are things where even on film, I can't know that for sure. So I'm not going to be definitive here. I'm not going to say Trask didn't make a mistake and Pitts did. I just don't know. 
he could have from the dig there even though the safety was low and tight on that route the dig was there when Trask releases the ball if Pitts turns into it he'll catch that pass it was not a big window it was not an ill-advised pass in fact had he thrown the post Allen that would have been the better route to throw flat-footed safety looking in he could have lobbed that ball right over his head for an easy touchdown things could have happened that's an attention to detail thing one way or the other um, you know, we got that right in the second half. And then lastly, my last comment here, we've had a weird run of officiating. It's been pretty poor, in my opinion, for large stretches of these crucial games. It was terrible in the first half yet again. It cost us pretty significantly, especially on Trask's second pick, where you had Van Jefferson wildly and clearly pass interfered with. Um, you had holding calls that they didn't call. You have another catch that somehow was ruled not a catch for us, ruled a catch for Georgia last week. This one looks like more of a catch. Second half fishing was much, much better. But I want to make one commentary here. And we said this before. A team like ours that passes the ball so often relies on proper pass interference and holding calls. They're really, really important to our team. And if you just don't do it, you're basically on the defense to get away with a significant amount of, I'm going to call it what it is, cheating in their benefit. And that's that's been consistently harming us in these football games. Right. This is a, a officiating is always a problem. It gets magnified in the replay era. I think college football and the NFL could use some I don't know, rehabilitation of their officiating crews, um, maybe thinking differently about how they employ them. I th- it's a human crew. They're going to miss something. Somebody held somebody somewhere. They weren't looking. But on that play to Van Jefferson, the ball is out. Everybody on the field is looking at them. If you're the referee who's assigned to that, what are you looking at? And you know what? I don't want them to get too chintzy where they're you know calling every little tic tacky kind of thing but on a play like that that ends up in an interception you you have to call it what what else what else is the penalty for other than to prevent them from doing that i mean both auburn and lsu got very physical with our receivers and dared the officials to call it and for the most part they didn't there's one stretch in the auburn game where they okay i guess we're gonna have to call this a little bit you know famously in the lsu game they drag <laughs> Uh, Cleveland to the ground, essentially, when Kyle Trasto's that pick, uh, trying to catch Freddie Swain. Yeah, you're right. It, so maybe thinking, this is, you know, we have to be careful if the officials aren't going to call it for us. What type of routes do we run? How do we play this? Because we're not getting the calls we need in some of the biggest games. Yeah, I think you have to really massage the officials pregame. You know, all you can do, look, we're going to pass the ball a lot today. A lot of teams have been holding us one-on-one. Keep an eye on where their hands are. Keep an eye on where their head's at. There's a lot coaches can do, and and it works. Dan freaked out in that first half on the officials. In the second half, they started really calling pass interference and holding. In fact, it was hard to find places on tape where Vanderbilt got away with it in the second half. They had three in a row there down in the red zone. So that was a struggle, not our own struggle, but it definitely cost us. Trask's line for the day, Allen, 25 of 37 363 yards, three touchdowns, two picks, both of which could have not happened potentially. One definitely shouldn't have happened in the pass interference call and one rushing touchdown. This was the best passing performance by a Florida quarterback since Tim Tebow's college finale where he threw for 420. Trask easily could have had many, many more yards. Let me me pause here and, and ask you this. So we've been in the wilderness. I mean, every college broadcast of our games would throw up the list of failed quarterbacks post Tim Tebow is almost the curse of Tim Tebow. Is this the quarterback who was promised? Basically, is Kyle Trask in our drought of good quarterbacks? 
Of course. I mean, we've been high on that. His numbers back that up statistically now. Like we said, he's on par, not with just good Florida quarterbacks, but with the best. You can pick any one of them. Danny Warfel, Rex Grossman, Tim Tebow. Pick your favorite guy and look at Trask's numbers and compare them. You will see a strikingly similar result. So for those of you that are still out there thinking that Emory Jones is better or someone else is better, I don't know how else to say this, but you are wrong. And obviously you're not watching tape or film. You need to appreciate the greatness that is Kyle Trask. And oh, by the way, newsflash, the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, you know what he ran in the 40? The same thing that Trask did. He's only the greatest of all time, Alan. But you know what I guess? If you can't run the ball, then you can't play quarterback. Look, there's different ways to win. There's different styles. You got to maximize what Trask has. But you should enjoy him and you should pray that we do not select a different quarterback over him next year because this team has been largely what they are because of Trask. But yeah, it ends the drought. It does end the drought. We are finally in a place where each and every week, Alan, we can count on our quarterback to do a great job at that position. That is something that no one... Right. I hadn't really thought about that because the Trask era came on so suddenly. Usually you're looking at a guy, highly rated recruit, who would come in and, and stop the bleeding, essentially. Finally lift the curse, however you want to talk about it. And Trask shows up and it's like, wait a minute. You know, he looks really great. I think people are still slowly coming around, but I'm ready to declare it. You know, if we'd asked this question three weeks ago, we probably would have given the same answer here that we finally have a quarterback again at Florida. Yeah, remarkable run of games by him. Go look up his stats. Go look up the consistency. Really fantastic, as we mentioned all along. And then one last comment on his pocket presence, which, of course, nobody has mentioned since the week that Twitter blew up against Auburn and he fumbled three times. Not patting ourselves in the back here. I think anyone who listens to this show knows that although we make very strong opinions, especially me, we are not attempting to blow or toot our own horn. But sometimes we have to kind of put out the storyline of what we think is going on because no one else seems to be saying it. And Trask, his pocket presence was on display in this game. He moved left, he moved right, he stepped up, he slid out, he exited, he ran. He was showing you what a good quarterback does. My favorite play of the game, pocket presence-wise, aside from that touchdown run in the mesh, was when he evades the blitz, steps to his left, throws a dime to Cleveland on the sideline in between a cover two safety and cover two corner. That's everything on display from a high-level quarterback. That is some next-level stuff. Absolutely fantastic. You just do not see that often. Uh, Really, really amazing stuff to see on film. I thought in this game... We've talked a lot about Dan Mullen and post-game stuff, kind of nitpicking or not really saying a lot about Trask. When asked about the second half, there's no higher praise than this, Alan. He basically said there there is nothing to comment on the offense in the second half. It was it was amazing. It was great. It was perfect. It was incredible. Like You just don't hear coaches say that. And again, it doesn't matter who you're playing against. If you're playing against air, it's hard to do that. And so appreciate the efficiency that Kyle Trask is running with. Right, really, and he really is human. Job. A few bad throws, notably throwing across his body late, which if you watch football, anytime a quarterback does that, you'll hear the announcers, you hear everyone go, do not do that. And you saw why somebody coming from an angle he doesn't see almost intercepting the ball. So you'll see a few moments. You're right. He's not perfect. He still makes mistakes. If you were, if you're wondering, we did, we do know that when he messes up, just the overall excellent level of play far outshines those few and far between. Correct, and we note that, like you mentioned, that's right there in the notes about the coming over the middle late. And a sign of any good quarterback, we've said before, is adjusting to those same mistakes. You rarely see Trask continually do the same thing wrong. So I would be surprised if he threw over the middle again like that for the rest of the season. He's so efficient 
at cleaning his mistakes up. Uh, Tyree Cleveland during the week said that you know Kyle Trask's smartness helps them get into good looks and good plays. And it's a great way to describe how Kyle Trask makes plays because that's true. He's using his brain to create open receivers. And that is what you truly want out of your quarterback. If he's a super athlete or not, you always need that. So great work by him. Uh, last comment on Emery. On film, you, you there are still concerns with Emery's throwing. So if you're really someone who does love Emery and you want him to play a lot because you think he fits Dan Mullen's system and he can run, he's electric, those are all nice things. That's half of quarterbacking in Dan Mullen's system, right? It's half. The other half, throwing the ball, he's still very, very raw. I don't think anybody would truly want to see Emery starting at quarterback at UF right now with this offensive line. It's a mismatch with what we would need him to do. It works well in spades for games, but a couple examples... Uh, he, st- he just was staring down that drag route, which he wound, he wound up finally throwing and trying to squeeze one in there to, I think, Van Jefferson, where he had two or three guys around him. That was not great. And Copeland, although we wind up getting that completion, Allen, Copeland gets an inside release on a go route destroys his man. That ball's got to be thrown inside. If it is, it's a touchdown. He throws it six yards outside of Copeland. But because Copeland is so much better than the corner he's playing against, he's able to still run and go get it. But that's a horrific ball placement. Now, Emery's done well on deep balls. I'm not here to to nail him. But, you know, it's both plus and minus. I think that I really hope, I want to say this now I've talked about it, could Emory transfer? He certainly could. Four-star quarterback, highly sought-after guy, not getting the playing time he wants, potentially staring on the barrel of sitting out another year next year. I think it's clear to me now, Alan, and I think you'd agree, that Coach Mullen is doing all he can to keep Emory engaged. Because you don't want to lose Emory. That's true. You don't want to lose Emory because you got to look at it this way too. Trask and Franks are both gone next year no matter what after the season. They're both gone. You've got Anthony Richardson coming in who people are very high on, east side Gainesville high product, but he's not going to get played as even a redshirt freshman, right? He'll redshirt next year. And as a redshirt freshman, who would Dan prefer? Of course he's going to prefer the redshirt junior and Emory. But will Emory wait? I don't know. I hope so. I think Mullen's trying to keep him engaged. I think that would be the best case scenario for Emery. The old line will mature. You build a team around Emery. You can win with him. It'd be different than Trask. So remains to be seen. But I do think I agree that there is some fear that you may lose Emery. And that would not be good for the team. Let's say Frank's transfers. Who's your backup? You literally don't have one if Trask gets hurt. You need a guy like Emery to stay engaged. So keep an eye on that one. Right. So if you're looking for why is Dan playing him in certain situations... We kind of really haven't got into that because we were talking about the tactical nature of this in big games. But the human side of this, the recruiting side of this, you're kind of in this modern era always recruiting the guys who are already there because you don't want them to leave via transfer portal. Okay, uh, do you want to jump over to the defense? Let's talk just quickly, rehash on ways to improve as it's a running usage. So continue using Emery in the, in the right ways because, again, I think especially in these kind of games, Alan, you get a lead, you're in there. You do need to keep him engaged. You need him to be a backup. You can't cater to him to lose a game, right? Let me just say this. As a coach, your mission is to do what's best for the team at all times. Always. And you need to teach your players. You need to be thinking about what's best for the team at all times. If you have players that leave because they don't see that that way, you have to be okay with that. But we are in a transition period. We're still building the culture, which sometimes means you have to make some tactical compromises, as I'll call them, to survive, right? Two or three years from now, you can probably walk your culture line very hard. Hey, player so-and-so, you don't want to buy into this? You don't want to view the team first and view what's best for them first? Then here's the transfer portal. This season, year two, you start losing enough of these guys. 
kind of weighs on you. So you probably walk this line a little more than you even want to, which we're doing. Do that in these kind of games. Continue with our route combos to get more of these rubs to help spring big plays, right? Let's look into that. Let's keep doing that. We have a big game on tap against Missouri, which we're going to talk about. Very interesting matchups. I think that will be important. I still think Pierce needs more touches. And obviously, recruiting, you can see the benefit we have right now of a guy like Kyle Pitts, of guys like Van Jefferson, of Grimes, right? You have to keep a pipeline of these talented guys coming in because even as good as Trask is, Alan, wave a wand and give us average receivers, we have nothing, right? It takes 11 men to be good. So keep that going. Keep improving on that side. All right, let's talk about the defense. Obviously, an extremely dominant performance against an overmatched team. Third shutout of the season. That's the first time that's happened since 1988. Uh, I don't know. that Shutouts are hard. I, I know I was excited when we got that touchdown off of one of their red zone trips to keep the shutout alive. They missed a field goal. Interesting stuff that we did with scheme and personnel. You saw Marco Wilson starting at the star position, the nickel position, instead of trading. He'd been obviously getting some playing time there. Basically moved Dean out to corner again, seemingly. With not starting though with um you know Henderson, then Elam, the first guy off the bench there. So interesting that they finally I I think have ended the trading at star experiment. Largely a failure, uh, unfortunately. Um, so we also did some interesting things cover cover wise. Why don't you talk about that? Well, we've been begging for a certain thing to happen. In fact, last last episode, I literally said, "Alan, hey, Grantham, like, what happened to the dime? Is the dime just dead? Is it not part of your package?" And maybe Grantham listens. I don't know because we played a ton of dime in this game. So dime is interesting. Like nickel, five defensive backs. Uh, I guess, you know, kind of cleverly named dime is just you go up one more to six defensive backs. You can do that in a lot of ways. It's some kind of combination of safeties or corners, depending on like, I guess, your personnel and what you're trying to prevent them to do. We played a lot of three safeties in this dime. Um, also, played a little closer to the line of scrimmage. I'm sure you were picking up on that. I loved it. We played a lot of cover one press man. Uh, you saw our star, our nickel. You know, Marco Wilson line up on his man on the line of scrimmage. We were fantastic at it. Yes, you're playing Vanderbilt, but this is, in my opinion, Alan, how our team is built. You took off the weakness of having a guy like Ventral Miller on the field trying to cover someone and said, forget it. We'll stop the run with Jawan Taylor or someone else coming down the box, Sean Davis, right? Whatever the case may be. I loved it. Uh, the question would be, why wasn't this happening earlier? It could be a day late, a dollar short, but I'll give a different narrative. This was by far the most different game plan of the season. And we said heading into this game that Grantham could run whatever scheme he wanted. It was all going to work. I'm not going to sleep on the fact, Alan, that he chose all of a sudden to be very innovative, personnel-wise and scheme-wise. And we begged for this early in the season. Hey, look, Dean is struggling. Why not do this kind of stuff? Why not try these kind of guys out? We didn't do it. So is it too late? Probably. Should we discount that? No, we shouldn't. Because coaches are humans, and just like in your own life, the right time to learn a lesson is now. Whatever's happened, learn the lesson and apply it to your future. And so maybe this works for next year. Maybe this works for Mullen's future with whoever the DC is if Grantham chooses to go somewhere else. So I'm not going to sleep on that. I thought that was really encouraging, even if it was late, which is simultaneously frustrating and encouraging. It was better late than never. Coaches a lot of times just would never change that. And so we saw a lot of different stuff out there. I liked a lot of it. 
Okay, so we did play dime. How did we look when we did play it? We were excellent. Uh, we got you know an interception off of dime. We got multiple sacks out of dime. Man, uh, we were we were obviously very dangerous. Of course, Vanderbilt again overmatched, but having Marco Wilson in in the the nickel position changes everything, especially when he's on the line of scrimmage. There's no clean release. There's no one to throw the ball to right away. You're altering their route combinations. You're altering their spacing. All the things we liked, but more importantly, Alan, you're playing to our personnel. C.J. Henderson, Marco Wilson, and even Trey Dean out there at corner. Elam right now is the best, here's a fun fact, the best freshman corner in the country per usage rate. He's not getting a lot of snaps, but they basically don't throw at him. And on film, people aren't getting open on him. So it's like, yeah, if you have excellent. guys that can chase people over the field, like we've said, that is one of the most sought-after positions in the NFL. Put them to use that way. Don't make them zone defenders. And if you struggle with linebackers, which we do to cover, take them off the field. Let your other safety play. So we looked fantastic. I love it. I hope to see more of it this week. This can also be used against Missouri, which we will talk about. Very encouraged with Gransom's game plan in this game. I don't know why it happened or how it happened, but I'm going to be excited about it. I'm going to praise it. And I would hope to see it in games that matter more later. Maybe FSU, who's still very talented. Maybe our bowl game. I want to see if he reverts back to safety or if this is potentially something he's testing out. Right, because with the strategy that... He, you know, playing nickel off coverage is not necessarily like an inherently bad way to play defense, right? We're not saying Grantham, his base strategy is bad. He's just shown an unwillingness to adjust from it. And I guess kept hoping for the same results that we're going to get a pass rush. It happened earlier on and it just was not happening. And we we're, he was loath to go away from it. There, again, if we were to talk to him, who'd have some, I'm sure, a myriad of reasons of that. Uh, entered into his thinking. Now, we might disagree with all of them. I, I'm sure he just wasn't going, nope, I'm never changing. But the slowness to adapt can be killer in college football where the better teams are going to try to exploit you with what you're doing. And now, again, if you're playing a team like Vanderbilt, we probably could have played our same defense, and it, like you said, it wouldn't have mattered. Okay, let's talk about Vandy's game plan. Actually, let's don't. It didn't matter. They were terrible. And this is a team last year that was coherent that was fine they were dangerous on offense at points not anymore and again they were playing a third string quarterback who i think was a walk-on they were really bad okay what we did right i love this you have written down here basically everything two picks sack fumble touchdown return six sacks only 128 yards by then they were three of 15 on third down so much better percentage than the previous week and then the guys you saw playing well, Diabate, Grenard, Sean Davis with a couple of big hits. And then let me bring this all down to your boy, Donovan Steiner. Now, we've been extremely critical of his play. In your ways to improve every week, I think you've listed less Steiner. Uh, was he just right place, right time, or a little bit better play by him? Both, but also... Steiner is a guy that gets exposed against better competition, right? So in life, if you've played high-level sports, I'm sure there's guys you played with on your team that excel against a certain level of competition. Then you go to the next level of competition and they get exposed. It's sort of like a, a seesaw that balances one way or the other entirely. And that's Donovan Steiner. You know, On this podcast, we I'm not rooting against anyone. I feel good for Steiner. I can be simultaneously frustrated he plays in big games when he shouldn't and also feeling great for a guy who's out there working really hard, seems like a really nice guy and get some picks. He had two really nice plays. The first one was a, a cover it was a cover two man robber, and he just slid right back into the hole 
to rob that dig route, something we begged for against Georgia right, and did that never well. did. So when I say cover two, we showed cover two, went to cover one, played press man, and slid Steiner into the hole to rob, which was literally the big for game plan. Awesome. Second pick was a cover two robber. He starts what looks to be like cover one. He immediately goes to cover two. Then you see Chester Kimbrough pass off his man. Sander goes right to the hitch route and picks it off. Really nice play by him. That was the better play of the two. That one caused him to move about 30 yards to get that pick. He timed it really, really well. Very, very nice. But the, the man of the, the man of the match, if you will, to use a soccer term, was, was Diabate. We highlighted him last week. We said he looked really explosive and good on film. He didn't play a lot of plays in this game out. And I think he Only said he 19 played 19 plays. plays. But he was a tornado of destruction. Three sacks and a forced fumble. He has three and a half sacks on the year, which puts him only half a sack behind the team leader, Grenard. What a phenomenal game by him. And he's a four-star, Allen, which we've talked about. Four stars, typically better than three stars. He's explosive. He's quick. He's also way undersized. For real, at very thirteen. You should expect him to gain 20 to 30 pounds before the start of next season. Keep an eye on Diabata. He is explosive, and he's powerful even for his size now. Very, very excited about what we have in him. He's definitely a flash of what you hope to see your future players be like. Right. He's holding his own at the point of attack, too, as when they play him at defensive end and not just the buck position. So, I mean, strong dude for his size, too. Bright, bright future for him. Where did we struggle? Well, we did not. Uh other than continue to recruit the type of guys like Diabate, any other changes you would want to make for the defense? Yeah, I want to be hopeful here. I want to hope that this is a signal for the future to be more creative earlier with your personnel, not to just get set in stone. When you build a talented team, half the battle is resource management. And if your freshmen are good enough, put them out there. If they're beating out a junior, put them out there. Do not trust what is safe because what is safe is not what's going to beat elite teams. You have to do it. You got to roll with them. LSU is famously doing it with their five-star all-world corner in Stingley. Sometimes he gets burned real bad. It happened again against Alabama. But other times he makes heroic plays. Let your players make plays. Let them learn when they're talented. And again, scheme-wise, don't be afraid to innovate and move with where the game is going. I'm very, very confident that the more you face teams like LSU and Alabama, the more you have got to play man defense. It's what's going on in the NFL it's trickling down to college. Like we talked about before, if you're a coordinator under the age of 35 or 36, you probably already play a lot of man defense. Grantham's not in that age group. Hopefully, if he stays with us, he spends the offseason really thinking about matchups, man defense, pressing, and disrupting teams that rely on beating your zone to death with beaters. You just can't let that happen. Right. So I think before you would have thought, what is the trickier way to play defense? It's a zone because you can disguise your zones. You can do more interesting things. Why is that shifted so hard that man defense is, I guess, the emerging route to go? Because defense is always reacting, right? You're trying to stop the offense. Offense changes, you react, whatever. So why is it that man defense is much preferable currently? Yeah, that is the question. You know, football is a game of innovation. Once upon a time in the late 80s, early 90s, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick were coaching at the Browns, and everyone ran a cover three zone. Like almost the whole NFL ran a four three cover three zone. It was actually very simple. Very Used to basic. hear the Steelers all the time with their zone blitz. Yeah, it was really powerful zone blitzing. It was sort of the meta. Everyone did it. It was so good, no one could beat it. But then you get an evolution. And what was that evolution, Alan? It was quarterbacks who had a strong enough arm to throw seam passes against a cover three in formations that had four receivers. Very basic math. If you play three guys deep and I send four guys deep, you can't cover all four of them. 
Now, once upon a time, they counted on their middle safety to basically cover both seam routes. Well, if you got a guy who doesn't have a big arm out there, you can't do it. But if you got Dan Marino out there, good luck stopping a backside seam go route. So it changes the NFL. The next 25 years of the NFL and college football have moved from that concept to offenses continuing to create plays that will beat the defense that you're in. And the spread offense, really largely instituted by Urban Meyer and other guys, like we talk about Mike Leach, Hal Mummy, right? Changed the game forever. By stretching the field all the way east-west, forcing you to cover both east-west and north-south and all that space, zone defense is not that effective. And I'll give you a simple illustration of this. If you're an NBA fan, which I know you are, there's a reason why you can't play zone. Even if they let you play as much zone as you wanted, you can't do it. Why? There's too much spacing on the floor. These guys are too good at shooting the ball. Right. So you just can't play a 2-3 zone or you'll get killed. They'll get wide open jump shot after wide open jump shot. And yeah, no one plays it other than very situationally. Correct. And so that's the same thing with where football is going. It's so spread out that if you play a zone and I'm a good, like Joe Brady is at LSU, I have good schemes, I will adjust. I, I line my, I put my guys out there. Oh, I see you're in this zone. I'll change my spacing. You're dead. You're totally dead. The only counter to that is to start playing man. And so it's funny how football kind of evolves to change things. So this is where the game is going. It's where you see people doing. It's a great point by you, Alan. Zones were once really confusing. They still are great against certain sets. But the base set most teams are running, you're going to have to have two or at least three guys that can play press man coverage, disrupt the timing of those routes. And then you can bail out a press man post snap to go into a zone, which would confuse them. But you can't just expect to line up in a zone and wreak any kind of havoc. Teams are way too good at reading those and running routes that will just beat them, basically getting guys open. Right, and the thing that will solve almost anything on the back end is an elite pass rush. If you have no time, it doesn't matter. Whether you're running zone or man, probably. And our pass rush, you know, partly through injury, partly through effectiveness of the other teams, has just not been there in our biggest games. So that's the other side of that. If you've got guys steamrolling the other guy's offensive line, you can do what you want. You probably don't want to get beat on a man, just a hero ball. So anyway, there's some there's some caveats to this, but I wanted to point out like why are we seeing this aggressive move towards man-to-man coverage when that seems to be a more basic level style of defense. Okay, let's talk about special teams. McPherson with a rare miss. Uh, kickoff's a little short. No one has said anything uh, from my eyes sitting where we were sitting on the 35-yard line. Looks a little injured. I don't. That doesn't really matter probably too much between now and next couple weeks. But, um, yeah, hopefully if he is injured, he gets a little healthier. Yeah, he's definitely limping a little bit on that left leg. And that's unusual. I think that explains the, the kickoffs being short. We got asked the question, why are we all of a sudden changing our strategy and not kicking the ball out of the end zone? I don't think we are. I think his plant leg is not healthy. And I think he's struggling to drive through it. I think the same thing on that field goal. He pushed it a little bit, and I think that's a symptom of not driving on that left leg. They obviously haven't said anything. Of course, he's still kicking through it. Something just to keep an eye on. Notice if you see the same little limp that we did. Maybe he gets healthy this week. All right, this week's Coaching Corner, Alan, is brought to all of you by Manscaped. If you're not familiar with Manscaped, it is a male grooming product primarily for below the belt. That's right, below the belt. A couple stats here. 85% of women think bad grooming is a major turnoff. That's really not a surprise. There's 15% that apparently like bad grooming. So if you're married to someone like that, congratulations, I suppose. Uh, 80% of women think men should you know, take care of themselves below the belt. And 90% of men themselves think that good grooming, just in general, is important to their professional success. 
Manscaped is here to help. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code GOGATERS. So go to manscaped.com, 20% off, free shipping. Use the code GOGATERS and grab yourself some gear, I suppose, to Manscaped. Uh, all right, Alan, coaching corner. A couple of good things from this game. First one we'll look at, fourth and two from the minus 43. So if you're not familiar with plus minus, minus is your side of the field, plus is the other side of the field. So we're on our own 43. Uh, we take a deep ball shot to P Ryan. Did you like going for it, and did you like the play call? I like going for it. I almost always want to go for it around that part of the field. If you have trust in your personnel, again, it's situational. Like in certain parts of the game, you don't want to do it. I liked going for it right there. I didn't mind the play. I don't know that that was the first read, but Kyle Trask saw that. P. Ryan had beaten his guy, and the linebacker got extremely lucky to tip that ball away from P. Ryan, or otherwise that's probably a touchdown. So against a team like Vanderbilt, we took the ball first, which means we wanted to be aggressive, so be aggressive. I thought it fit in with our overall uh, game plan, so I was fine with it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Uh, Again, this is all opponent-specific. And the play call was actually great. We ran, that was really a one route play call. So we ran our two receivers on hitches, but they were not, you can see the hitches, they were not expecting to get the ball. This was P. Ryan matched up against the linebacker. We obviously knew on film, that's how they handled this set. Not surprisingly, Allen on film, what do you notice? Immediately, their linebacker holds P. Ryan off the get-go. I mean, just completely holds this guy for a yard nap. Or P. Ryan would have been six yards past this guy for a touchdown. So first he holds him, they don't call it. Second of all, because DeLance misses his block, Trask has to slide to the left. He cannot step into his throw. Throws what's a good ball. But if, if it's two yards out in front of P. Ryan, that linebacker never catches him and he never touches the ball. And then the linebacker miraculously hits the ball and deflects it, right? So if you look at what had to go right for Vanderbilt, they beat DeLance. I guess that's somewhat likely. Mm-hmm. The guy holds P. Ryan, which could have been called. Then magically without looking, puts his hand right in the throw lane and blocks it. Otherwise, we get a touchdown. If you look at the expected value of that play, run that play 10 times, we're probably scoring a touchdown seven times on that play. And if you can score a 60-yard touchdown seven times on the field, you take that anywhere, especially against an overmatched opponent home. I liked that one. How about fourth and goal from the two-yard line? Did you like that one? We wound up scoring. It was supposed to be a toss to Pirine, but Trask gets his foot stepped on, right. recognized he can't make toss, which is wise, because that could become a fumble six the other way, and then throws a little... Little like kind of basketball free throw shot over the over the lone defender's head I mean, for a touchdown. Kyle Trask has shown a willingness to be innovative on his pitches. Just from the first game where I think he was like getting spun around and new P Ryan, I think was there. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. I loved it. Um, I again, I almost always want to go for it fourth down. I think this was towards the end of the half as well, right? Getting into it, yeah. yeah. It's not totally the end though. But yeah, this is a good moment to go for it. Fun play. I mean, they, if the guy, the guy moves towards Trask and, you know, puts Trask in a little bit of a bind there, but still, P. Ryan, there's no one within like 10 yards of him. So, funky delivery, but great result. Another good play call. And that was, I guess, the beginning of the second quarter, Alan, but it was, it can be P. Ryan one on one versus their corner. And I think you generally take a running back versus a corner one on one into space. And on film, we schemed it for that. So, I'm sure we liked that corner versus P. Ryan, but, Another great example of Trask just being a very smart player. A lot of quarterbacks just pitch that as they fall down. He doesn't. Keeps his balance, knows he's got one-on-one, patiently waits for it. P. Ryan continues the play, also very smart, doesn't panic and stop. And we score even if we didn't get it. I like that because, again, your defense is absolutely fantastic. Their offense is terrible. They're going to have the ball on the one-yard line. The expected value, the EV, is higher going for it 
at that stage of the game than it would be to kick a field goal because you actually expected values like 3.8 points or something by going for it on average, right? Because you're going to get the ball back score again. So at any rate, that's definitely the right decision. All right. How did you like calling a timeout as Vandy inexplicably took a knee on the one-yard line and Dan Mullen takes a timeout with two seconds left? Did you like that one? I don't know. I, this didn't get talked about a lot. I don't have. I don't really have strong feelings about it one way or, or another. It, it was kind of strange. Do you think he was trying to send a message? I loved it. I thought he was trying to get two points. Maybe a fumble snap, touchdown, who knows? I mean, if Vanderbilt's going to take a knee and inexplicably put themselves on the half-yard line and you can call timeout and make them run a play – where safety was a real risk, why not? The game's about scoring points. I really liked that. That was heady by Dan. He didn't just take off the headset. I think he was frustrated with our That's lack true. of ability to score, which had kind of led him to that. But either way, I think it's the right call. This is not Towson. It's not 50 nothing already. That's the right call. It's a competitive game. I liked it. Okay, lastly, maybe you're hinting at this. The Vanderbilt fans are not happy with the end result of this game. They felt like we ran the score up on them. A lot of people attribute this to the, in case you forgot, the halftime basic fight that Dan Mullen and Derek Mason got into last year at Vanderbilt when they were beating us like a drum, 21-3. to Make anything of this? Not a big deal? Maybe. I mean, if you learn from the school of Urban Meyer, Urban famously calling timeouts late against Georgia in 2008 after they beat us the previous year. I don't know. I, I don't think think this was probably that but this is okay if you're vandy as well if you're complaining about the getting the score run up you maybe this is just a straw man maybe no one is actually complaining about this but you're an sec team you're not a division two team like if you're running up against the score against a division two team and you're like being terrible to them yeah like you know show some mercy right uh this is supposedly top level football stop them now, let me pivot this and say Kyle Trask was in this game for quite a while into the fourth quarter. Wise choice, not wise choice? I like Kyle Trask getting as many reps as possible at this stage. I think it's still important for his own development. Tom Brady famously plays way late in every game all the time. Does that technically expose Tom Brady to more risk? Yes, if you look at risk as a function, as a function of snaps taken per game and percentage likelihood you get you get injured, of course, of course. The more snaps you take, the more likely you are to get injured. I liked it. I didn't think it was egregious. I think at this stage, he still is getting reps that are benefiting him. He's still growing. Let's say that he's a second-year quarterback or this is next year. I'd be taking him out at halftime. No need to play him more. So, fine. Get the reps. Still needs him. Still growing. Still learning. I also think, Alan, there was a little bit of, a, I think, a stat drive going on here. Trask had two very unfortunate interceptions. I think Dan really wanted to get him his fourth touchdown. So he had four touchdowns and two picks. And he tried hard to even do so, I think. Didn't wind up doing it. Put, puts Emery and we score the touchdown. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. I, I'd be fine either way. I think if you sat me down and said, here's your two choices, I think either one is defensible. Either one's defensible. There's good reasons for both. Injuries you can't control. You do need reps. It's what makes you better. Yeah. Agreed. I, I do want to get him more reps than the, you said a similarly accomplished quarterback who had played longer uh, or a similarly talented quarterback. Yeah, I, I think the reps are valuable for Emory too. So I started to get nervous, you know, where it's like, okay, we should probably have moved on. We still do have games to play. Um, you know, 
Interestingly, I wonder if we had won the previous week, whether Kyle would have had a quicker exit just to preserve his health a little bit more. But I think the stakes go down a little bit. Probably not as sharp on that decision-making as we probably previously were. Sharp maybe is not the right word, or as fearful as we could have been. And as a note on running up the score on Vanderbilt, I love it. I have no problem running up the score. I think that's the most absurd thing in sports. Like, really? You're lining up with referees to play a competitive game, and all of a sudden it gets too out of hand for you, and you're going to get mad that you got beat too badly? Like, get, Especially if you have backups in. over it. Yeah. Like, first of all, it's experience for everyone. Life is about learning. Sometimes you get beat real bad. And you know what? It doesn't matter. I've been in games where I've gotten waxed. I never once thought the other team was horrible people for trying to score on me at the end. Go out there and make a play. If someone's trying really hard, you know what it does? It gives you an opportunity to make a meaningful play at the end. So I just don't buy that. I think it's ridiculous. If I was coaching, I would never, ever even comment on it. Either way. If somebody ran the score for me, I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't care. It doesn't matter. I tell my players, you know what? You don't want the score to get run up on you? Play better. Let's get better, right? So that's ridiculous. That's my own personal opinion on that. All right, bright spots, Alan. Got a couple of bright spots here. Yeah, we've mentioned some of the freshmen, either Diabate, Elam. Your boy Chester was out there. We saw Jaden Hill. He got beat over the top one time. A lot of young guys playing. A lot of young guys flourishing. Uh, we're going to need them moving forward. So the freshmen playing well was nice to see. Yeah, I love I loved Chester. I mean, man, every year I kind of find myself falling in love with a particular player. It just happens. Sometimes I'm wrong. I could be wrong about Chester, but this guy is absolutely fantastic. I mean, he is dynamite. I am praying, Alan, praying that they move his undersized self to the star and just get over what they're looking at because this guy is built to play that position. He's absolutely electric out there on defense. He's super quick. He's very smart. He plays without fear. I love him. You could put him at corner, and that'd be fine, but I love him at that star spot. I think right. he can do it. I think he'll put on more size. I think he's plenty strong enough. I love that guy. That was really, really fun to watch each and every game. So the reason, even just a side note here, that you would want to put a more undersized guy at nickel, theoretically in the NFL, where that guy's traditionally been a little smaller. Now, kind of that hybrid has been moved to where you're playing a bigger nickel often, but traditionally nickel is a little smaller because the slot guy is a little smaller. Think Julian Edelman versus Calvin Johnson playing on the outside, right? You have a better chance to cover in there. Also, smaller guy, maybe quicker change of direction. He's got to cover both sides of the field potentially on those option routes. So that when when James is saying, or when you're saying, James, that you'd like to see him in that, that's what you're thinking about, a guy who can cover both sides of the field, up and down. Now, again, we preferred a bigger nickel who almost simulates a linebacker. I think even going back to the previous staff where you would see Marcus May playing in a kind of nickel where he ended up at safety. If you have a guy who can do both, all the better, I guess. But that hasn't been the case for us this year. Yeah, and to me, those positions originated stopping the zone read, a run-based play. Teams are way past that nowadays, which is why I prefer the pass-covering guys. Grantham's defense is going to be a bright spot for me. Grantham himself. Again, like we said, on this podcast, hopefully you realize that we give and we take away, right? Our job is to analyze. We don't have favorites. We don't ride a guy just to ride a guy. We'll praise when praise is worthy. And I think Grantham, the changes he made, the things he did on this game, very praiseworthy, very impressed, very happy to see it. We'll monitor it, see if it continues. And and on the flip side of the ball, Alan, it's it's the best pass-run balance I think we've had all year. I think it was fantastic. We had no, we were not just running the ball to run it. We were passing the ball almost all the time. We had no seemingly desire to get itchy to run it. 
And when we run it, we had some success, but we didn't really care. It was like, you know what? We're shredding them in these four and five wide sets. Let's just keep doing it. I loved it. Right. Some of the running too is quarterback scramble, you know, or it's third and one, let's pick it up here. So very, like what we would say, very situational running, which you want to be able to do. We, I think we were in a third and one one time and I was like, hey, we ran the ball and we got it. That's great. <laughs> you know, that you should do the easy thing when you can. So yeah, shout out to that for sure. Final thoughts. You've got a couple of questions here. Yeah, why don't you ask me this I'm one? I'm going to ask you this one first, though, because you're the personnel guy. All right, <laughs> so when we say personnel guy, also, I just tend to know the names on the roster more than you at the beginning of the season. And as well, I'm not a recruiting, recruiting guy, though. I don't follow recruiting year-round like crazy. So if you're asking me, like, well, where did this guy go to high school and what was his stats in high school, I do not know that stuff. No, but sure. Alan's the guy that, like, when you get a couple of games into the season and, and let's say you're, like, a new employee – and you seek out Alan. You say, Alan, hey, who is uh who is who is that freshman number who's number seventy four over there? And Alan will tell you where they're from, a little backstory. Uh, okay, Alan, who who's this new corner out there? Okay, that's so and so he's from there. So that's why Alan's the personnel guy. He's kinda he kinda has the the pulse on that. But as the personnel guy, important <laughs> question. Redshirt freshman Blaish, redshirt freshman, not a junior, not a senior, not an older guy, transferring, sort of just up and leaves. Not really super professional. His locker room's kind of just empty. Doesn't really tell anybody. Oh, by the way, I'm in the portal. Is this good or bad for the program? So I'm going to start off and say, first, we don't know fully why he transferred. I don't think anyone's come out and said. Uh, if it, It's unfortunate if there's something really going on with him. You know, We're texting with some people, whether it's mental, relational, emotional instability. If there's something really going wrong, that's unfortunate and that you don't want to cast stones at him, right? Um, if it's true that he left because he got benched after starting most of the year, I'll say there's some good and some bad there. It's good if he showed his true colors here. and If this is a type of guy who's going to quit after getting benched, after not, not arbitrarily benched, not playing well, got a million chances, you don't really want that guy in your program. Now, the very bad news is this is a guy who's already competing for a job as a redshirt freshman, which is normally not a place you insert offensive linemen into the SEC. Your hope is that if he sticks around, at worst, he would be a rotation guy or a backup who can play some snaps and, you know, in light of starters getting injured. You want those guys on your program, right? So that's very bad news for a program that's still trying to accumulate accomplished offensive linemen. It was a guy who had at least had some snaps and some reps that you assume will get better over time. So maybe some good, maybe some bad. Now it does open up a scholarship spot, but we've got plenty of those. So uh, like I said, our roster level is really low right now, dangerously low. I don't know. What do you think? Without knowing anything, and that's the important thing here, is we just don't know anything. But I'll talk about it from a, a coaching standpoint. Yeah, it's a good way to frame that. You build a roster – you build a culture. Sometimes people are going to leave your culture that you even selected to come into it. And that is just part of, of coaching and culture building. And it's normal. And you don't have full knowledge of these guys when they come in. You don't. You expect some of that to happen. Of course, we don't know why. You don't want to see someone go, especially someone that they had tabbed kind of as a starter, although the film indicated otherwise. He was still young, still could have figured things out. Maybe he gets passed. Maybe he doesn't. But in general, if if the story is this, okay, hey player, you're at my university, here's what we're going to do. 
we are always going to play the best player. And we're going to figure out who that is, which means sometimes the starter that's in there is not going to finish the year as a starter. And sometimes the guy on the bench is going to be the guy that comes in to finish the year. But you can rest assured that my commitment to all of you is to do what is best for the team. And what's best for the team is putting a roster out there that has the best chance of winning. And I think all of your players have to buy into that, which means that most kids' college careers are a little up and down. Sometimes they start. Sometimes they get bunched. Sometimes they switch positions, right? It's not perfect. Coaches aren't perfect at evaluating talent. Players aren't perfect at learning. But as long as I think the players know that what you are doing is to attempt to find the best guys for the job and that everybody gets a fair shot, and that if you're doing what's best on film and you're the best guy, you will play. If someone transfers and they're not the best guy, I would have no problem with that. That's not the kind of person I want in my culture. That kind of person, if they stay in the culture will potentially become toxic, Alan, and we'll start to say things behind my back. We'll start to talk to other players about how this is going on and that is going on. You definitely don't want that. We have no idea where Bleich fits into this. I will not even speculate. But I think that for me is the answer to the question. If it's under that paradigm where everything is right and things are happening and someone transfers, no big deal. If the staff is promising Bleich, you're a starter. We see all these things in you. This is great, blah, blah, blah. He's yo-yoing in and out, doesn't know what's going on, is being told all these different things, has no stability emotionally because the coaches aren't helping him. That's a different kind of problem. Right. And I think you said the important thing, the type of culture that we would want to build, I think as coaches, we're pretty aligned on this, is that, yeah, the best guy does play. Because you're playing a guy because you made promises or you're scared of this or whatever, or just he's your favorite, you know, People instinctively see that unfairness and go, well, this isn't a a meritocracy here. The best guys aren't playing for some reason, right? Some guys have conspiracy theories about that and we'll start to blame the coaches or whatever. But if clearly the team sees that you're not playing the best guy, that's a problem. So if you're that person and you can't handle that, right? Because that's the way you would want. If you were the best guy and you weren't playing, that would be a problem. So if you're not the best guy in this situation – there's, uh, it's tough. I'm sure that's tough on the ego. So again, that's more of a meta kind of commentary on this. And again, we don't know. I don't, I don't want to come out and slam him because I don't know all the details, but just thinking about that, you know, situationally, which way that lands could maybe just a little bit inside of where the program is at still and the culture they're trying to build. Does the results of the Bama LSU game, is it more or less change your level of satisfaction with our showing against LSU. So on one hand, seeing LSU handle Bama, even a, I think not an elite version of Bama's defense, right? They're playing a lot of freshmen. This is not the sole wrecking unit that they've tried out there in the past, but seeing LSU still be extremely effective offensively does make me go, Hmm, we might not have played optimally against them, but we had a really good showing against them. We were up in the second half. So one more encourager, I think, of the level that our program is at overall. Now, again, I would love to have seen us try something different tactically in that game. We've talked about that over and over again. So one, I think being really encouraged by the overall state of our program, even being in a kind of depleted state we are roster construction-wise, and then still a little frustrated that we didn't make some changes, LSU, Georgia. This team is capable, even its depleted state, of winning those games. And, you know, once you get to the playoff, that's all kinds of fun. LSU result 
more satisfied with. Doesn't change any of the tactical feelings we mentioned on the podcast. All those remain very true to me. Bama did play some press man. They also played a lot of zone. Truth be told, Bama does not actually have, in my opinion, some of the press man corners we have right now, which might be a little crazy to say, but I don't think they do. And they also had five true freshmen playing in that game, which affected them. LSU, however, does cement themselves in my mind as an elite offense. In fact, Alan, they're trending now as one of the best college offenses ever in points per possession. So you can't sleep on anything they're doing. Joe Burrow has cemented himself uh, for me as one of the best quarterbacks in college football. His transformation last year to this year is remarkable. He was smart last year and he managed the game well, but he has turned into an absolute difference maker in that offense. The Georgia game, though, still really stings. LSU, we had a lead in the third quarter. Trask played phenomenal. We did some dumb things on defense. We still even had the ball in the middle of the fourth quarter down a score. We were so in that game. The Georgia game, we also wound up being in the game despite playing terribly. But that game hurts. Georgia, I think, was a very beatable team. But most importantly, what I'm taking away, although I'm frustrated, I think we had something this year. We could have won one of those two, which really would have been a great season is that we asked this question when McIlwain was here. In order for Florida to get back into the right mindset, the right place as a program, we have to be competitive against the elite teams. Well, let's check those boxes. right? Lead against LSU on the road, night game, biggest game they played in a long time, check. right? Georgia getting stomped, come back, have the football, score a touchdown, get a chance to make a stop on third and seven, get the ball back with two minutes left, check. We're competitive again. We're right there. Watching LSU beat Alabama like a drum at halftime, imagining Florida playing Alabama, we're competitive. Check. That seemed like a pipe dream a couple of years ago. That should not be slept on. That's really, really important. Also, and I want to make one maybe unpopular comment, just because we're competitive with those teams does not mean we will get over the hump and beat them. I certainly hope we do, hope we will, but those things are not that's not causation correlation either, right? In year two, if you're playing close with your rivals, it doesn't mean you're ever going to beat your rivals. That's the next step that we're going to have a lot of fun watching and evaluating, recruiting being a huge piece of this. But your answer to the question is correct. No matter how you feel as a Gator fan, we have taken a quantum leap forward and that we are now competitive against the programs in the country when we were anything but for the past eight or nine years before this. And that's a big deal. It should be celebrated. It should be comforting. It's fun to be relevant again. That's a really, really good way to look at that. It's time to look at our picks from the Week 11 National Games brought to you by MyBookie.ag. No one gives you more ways to win than they do. MyBookie's got the fastest payouts and better lines than any other sportsbook. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use the promo code GatorNation to activate the offer. That's promo code GatorNation. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. And on any of these live reads that we do on the podcast... The promo code you use is never seen by us, by the way. We have no idea if you're shopping on Manscaped or you're shopping on mybookie.ag. No idea. Totally confidential, totally private. These companies partner with us because they like our show, they like our content, and they like who our listeners are, and they put it out there. So rest assured, regardless, that Alan and I have no clue what is going on when it comes to that. All right, Alan, walk us through the games that went down last weekend. Okay, I went... Six and six, you went seven and five. Now, nice bounce back for you. That's including the Florida game there, which you got right that we covered. I did not. Very interesting week in college football. A lot of fun. Great day of college football. Let's start with the Baylor TCU game. 
goes to three overtimes. Baylor remains undefeated, wins 29-23. It was 9-6 to six in the fourth quarter with 30 seconds left. 9-6. to six. Both of these teams are converting wild fourth downs and overtimes to keep the game alive. The game ends on a fourth down after TCU gets backed up. I'd kind of gloated to you at the game that I felt like I was wise picking TCU over Baylor, and then Baylor answered the call. And they, 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 get, did. they get a huge win to remain undefeated. What a season for them and Matt Rule out Yeah, that keeps everything in front of them. They've got their biggest game still upcoming. I believe they have Oklahoma coming up here this week. Kansas State at Texas. We both took Kansas State in the points, but they lose 24-27. A pretty good win for Texas here. Yeah, Kansas State led most of this game. We were wise to pick Kansas State, right? They wind up sneaking inside with the points. Uh, very good win for Texas. It looked like Texas was about to be headed towards the dreaded 5-4 and four result on the season. And that wound up not being the case. So excellent work by Texas to sneak a win out there. But that is not, um, you know, not, I think Kansas State, narrative there is Kansas State, solid season. They're a real team. They gave Texas all they could handle for almost all that game on the road. So keep an eye on that program as well. Yeah, Texas needed to win this game, I think, to avoid some of the disaster of a season type talk they would have endured. Miami crushes Louisville 52 to 27. Yeah. I don't know why Alan, do you want to say why you took Louisville? Cause you took Louisville on this one. Any thoughts? Yeah. Miami, I mean, they, they beat Florida state the week before Miami just feels like they hadn't really put it all together. And, and Louisville had been getting better and better and they were solid. I didn't expect them to get blown out. It's really that I thought it was going to be a close game. So, Man, this is a great result for Miami. Yeah, no, good pick by you, honestly. I took Miami, but we talked about this game being one that neither of us would touch. And Miami scoring 52 points seems unbelievable. I didn't get to watch a whole lot of that game. But either way, a good win for Miami. They're kind of quietly finishing rather strong. And maybe the other Jekyll Hyde team in the ACC, Virginia Tech, continue to climb a little bit. Beats Wake Forest, a very solid Wake Forest team. 36 to 17. Yeah, beat them like a drum. I rode Virginia Tech with this one based upon momentum. And I just said, hey, you know what? They're crushing people in the past two or three weeks. What a weird season they've had out there in Blacksburg. But they're, again, I think for their fan base, they're quietly putting together a year that just is probably going to make them optimistic about Fuente next year. Right. So this is a, I mean, they had some really bad games early on. And everyone, we talked about Fuente was we're going to hold or fire him or whatever. He was on that kind of level of discussion. And they've turned down a little from afar. You know, I don't know the inner workings of Virginia Tech or exactly why they've been so up and down, but very weird season from them. Okay. Iowa, Wisconsin, the Big Ten. Wisconsin edges them out 22-24. Yeah, classic pick by me. I spent the whole time talking about how Wisconsin's not that good and the athletes are the same and Iowa plays close games. And then I picked Wisconsin to cover the eight and a half point spread. Dumb. Dumb. Another tough close loss for Iowa. Wisconsin. Good win for Wisconsin. They were not supposed to be a world-beating team this year. And they sort of elevated too high. And this is the kind of game that's going to make them look back, I think, on this season. And it will be good because you have to win these close match games. So good win by Wisconsin. All right. Better pick by you. App State wins at South Carolina 20-15. to This is such a classic Will Muschamp result. Now, to be fair to App State, they are better than Vanderbilt. They're they're right there. They're on par probably with Kentucky and Tennessee, if not really close on a lot of given days. This is a good football team. But South Carolina at home as a favorite, having a season where they beat Georgia, they were relatively healthy in this game. This is just a, a bad, bad result. The clones cover and 
have a chance to win on a two-point conversion at Oklahoma, 41-42. Early on, Oklahoma was smoking them. And then Iowa State just claws their way back and almost stages the upset. This was a crazy, crazy game. What an insane game. I got to catch the last fourth quarter. It was sort of there were no good games on. Everyone's getting blown out. And I'm like thinking, okay, I'm probably going to shut this one off. Let me just watch one more drive. And on that drive, uh, you know, the star player for Oklahoma, Lamb, fumbles. Oklahoma gets the ball. I mean, it gives the ball away. Then, you know, Iowa State scores. And this begins like a procession of Iowa State climbing back in, climbing back in, climbing back in to where they scored with about 24 seconds left. Allen, they went for two, Iowa State did. And they actually had a guy wide open, the tight end who had just caught the touchdown. He didn't see him. Tries to force one into the receiver and 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 doesn't get the win on the road, but it was a wild game. You could just see Lincoln Riley; the blood was draining from his face. As this would have ended everything they'd worked for. This game was totally over. Phenomenal college football ending, uh, and you feel bad for Iowa State and Oklahoma now. Maybe in an interesting place, heading into a huge game against Baylor this week mentally. Right. I guess there's been a philosophical shift that teams are now going for it you know, down one or basically to tie instead of kicking the extra point going for two and winning it. The Jaguars did this. I'm forgetting now who did it. Several teams have done this. Our North Carolina did it against Clemson. We talked about it. I still really like it. I would like the one play knockout punch rather than going to OT. But would you, would you have kicked it there? I like this one. This one was a 24 seconds left. And we talked a lot about the North Carolina, which was a minute left. And North Carolina was at home. Iowa State on the road. Oklahoma had stopped themselves in the previous two drives. But Oklahoma was shredding, just shredding their defense. So the question becomes as a coach, if I go to overtime, can I score on them? And can they score on me? And what are the odds of that? And here's this one play where Iowa State had scored like three or four times in a row. They were on fire. And so that's the right time to do it. Whereas in the UNC game, neither team was scoring. I think that's a better case for overtime at home. So depends on what you're looking at. In this case, I liked it. It's still unfortunate to like kind of claw back like that and not take the lead. But that felt like it would have been a knockout punch of 24 seconds left. That's, I think, the right time Yeah, to I wish some of these teams would have gotten it more because I want this trend to continue. I like it. I like the aggressiveness. Okay, Tennessee edges out Kentucky 17-13. I mean, Tennessee is treating this like a huge win. Maybe they want a feather in the cap of Jeremy Pruitt. They might get bowl eligible. But, then, again, this is a Kentucky team playing a wide receiver at quarterback, so have at it, Tennessee, if you want. Yeah, huge win maybe because in the cycling of quarterbacks at Tennessee, Garantano comes off the bench much maligned and leads them to the final He's got a cast on his hand at the end. Yeah, it's a super wild game. Kentucky's played a lot of wild games this year. I think you can say a lot of positive things about what Mark Stoops is doing. You know, Derek Mason's got to play his third-string walk-on quarterback. And after the game, he says it is what it is. Like, basically, we're going to get killed. But let's give some props to, to Mark Stoops. He took a wide receiver who was you know nearly an all-SEC wide receiver and puts him at quarterback because he loses all three of his guys. No complaints. And they're winning football games. So kind of a different – you can see the different level of where programs are at. But either way, this is good win from Tennessee. I mean, this is – they're building wins. It's not Tennessee of old. It's not Kentucky of old either. Look, we would have lost the same Kentucky team. And they didn't have their starting quarterback either. So it's true. I mean, either way, a win's a win for Tennessee, I think, at this stage of the game. And I think for them, bowl eligible would be a monumental miracle given how things are looking. But if this is the Willie Taggart syndrome, I would like Jeremy Pruitt to win a couple of these games and stick around a little longer because I don't think he's going to be a guy that takes them to the next level. I mean, he might turn them into a Mark Stoops esque solid Kentucky team, but that's not what Tennessee's looking for. 
Okay, let's get to the two games of the day. Let's row the boat, James. Minnesota 31, Penn State 26. Wild game at the end. Penn State throws an interception right at the end of the game. Huge, huge win for P.J. Fleck and the Gophers. What a win. What a job by P.J. Fleck. He was highly thought of coming into Minnesota. Comes from a much smaller program. Minnesota kind of slowly took some time to get them going out of the gate. Kind of felt like he was going in the right direction. and has put together an absolutely magical season. I'm frustrated at myself for yet this is the second pick I made where all I did was talk about how Penn State's not good on the road. Penn State's overrated. I don't believe in them. And then I, I picked them to cover the spread. I've got to stick with my gut here, Alan. But really exciting game. Great college football game. I love it when other schools are in the race. I love Baylor being undefeated. I love Minnesota being undefeated. They love their football up there in Minnesota. They love it. They take it seriously. It's fantastic. I'm stoked for them as a state, uh, and I can't wait to see what they do coming down the stretch. This is the first time that I think they've been 9-0 since like 1903 or something like that, which is crazy. Although I guess I don't know when the last time the Gators were undefeated that late in the season. You know, oh, Well, never mind. 2009. There you go. Famously, we've not had an undefeated season in our championship years. Is I guess what I was referring to there. All right. Amazing game in Tuscaloosa. LSU, Bama. LSU pulls it out 46-41. Yeah, the, the game to me came down to the debacle that happened at the end of the first half. Joe Burrow winds up scoring. They get the ball back. They're down 26 to 13, which is fine. LSU's getting the ball. You can tell that Alabama's feeling pressure. But that that pick, followed by the touchdown at the end by LSU, was like a knockout punch, seemingly. But then give Alabama credit. They fight all the way back. They start stopping LSU. LSU only scored 13 points in the second half of this game, Allen. So as much as Alabama struggled, they did start to make the windows much tighter for Joe Burrow. They put him in a lot more third downs. They cleaned up what was going on. Too little, too late, though. Ultimately, and, and again, credit goes to, to Joe for playing a phenomenal game on the road, exercising the, the monkey on their back that they've had for a long, long time. And then the post-game clip of Ed Orgeron in the locker room, which, by the way, what are these players doing? Facebook living and Instagramming these videos from their locker room. Like, that's supposed to be in there. I personally loved it. I thought that well, was we gotta amazing. See I would want Dan Mullen and my head coach to say the same exact thing. If you haven't seen it, I won't spoil it for you. Just Google Ed Orgeron post game Bama. It's amazing to me. That's just um, it's it's great. Anyone that complains about that or says that was classless or not great, I don't think has played sports against a rival, especially one like that. Crazy game lived up to the hype. I mean, these LSU Bama games have been flat for years because Bama just was rolling them. LSU was trying to out Bama Bama, and they could never do it. Really fun to have this version of LSU in the world. Let's see if they can maintain it. If Joe Brady's there next year, I think they're going to open up the vault for him. We'll see if he sticks around. Yeah, rumors already being spread that they're going to pay him at least $1.5 million, which would make him one of the highest paid coordinators, and he may not even be the offensive, offensive coordinator. coordinator right. He's making 400000 now. But like we said in the beginning of the year, we literally said about LSU, this comes down to Joe Brady, how right. different they will be. And because they've been so successful, now Joe Brady is the all-star name not even really 30 years old yet in all of college football. Pretty cool moment for him. Uh, hope that he doesn't get in over his head and take a, like a head coach job somewhere that he's not ready for. But 
obviously a star on the rise. All right, let's, let's tackle the rest of the SEC games, James. And not a lot of excitement here. Western Kentucky at Arkansas. Western Kentucky wins 45-19, resulting in the firing of Chad Morris. We think, I think, Willie Taggart's the worst hire in the history of Power 5 football. The Arkansas fans would tell you that Chad Morris was, and he never won a single SEC game. He went 4-18. and He was absolutely terrible. Yeah, but I think they're starting at different positions, okay. right? So, I mean, the the talent that Willie Taggart had on hand. The SEC West is a shark tank, right? Even the bad teams are not bad. The ACC, the reason we'd also criticize Willie Taggart's performance is the ACC is historically weak right now. And you're still having these terrible, terrible games. Obviously, I mean, I think the team had just quit at this point. I mean, you don't lose that badly to Western Kentucky, if you haven't. Uh, okay, so without getting too specific on names, what was the type of guy, if you're Arkansas, that you would look for? They're looking for you know Gus Malzahn and those kind of guys in the world to come back home. I don't know. I think you have to view Arkansas sort of like you view a Nebraska, in my opinion. It's very, very hard to recruit players to play there. They fancy themselves, given their tradition, as like a Texas-level program, which I think is a problem. I don't think kids view them that way at all. I don't know what to say in response to this, Alan, because that seems like a really, really hard job. So who's going to take it is the question. And then what kind of style do you want to play with? Chad Morris was like a passing kind of guy. Open up the offense, pass pass the football around. Couldn't get the personnel right. Couldn't get the system right. Couldn't get anything right. They've had success in the past with guys who have run the ball a lot. I just don't think that's the era we're in anymore. So I truly don't know. What do you think? So then with Chad Morris, you know, who had connections to Texas because you have to recruit Texas at Arkansas. That's where you're going to get a lot of your players. You're not going to get the top tier ones, but you still need to be able to glean those fields. I would try for like a home run hire. Now, I don't know if you can get Norvell. At Memphis, this is still an SEC job, so he's probably going to listen to you. But I would definitely be calling him. But I would take a chance on a guy like P.J. Fleck. You know, young guy. You know, because Chad Morris is not that young, even though it was his first time as a, you know, head coach at that level. He had been, you know, the head coach at SMU, obviously. You know, they famously stole Bielema from Wisconsin. That seemed like a coup at the time. Doesn't work out. I would go young up and coming, see if you can hit a home run. Because if you bring in like a safe guy, he's probably just going to be average. I, they're so desperate, they're even like pining for Bobby Petrino, who's wrecked programs. So, I don't know. They're desperate. We'll see what they do. Yeah, they spent a ton of money expanding their stadium. They're in a really, really weird spot. New Mexico State goes into my team, Old Miss, <laughs> with Matt Luke, and they win 41-3. to Nothing to see here. New Mexico State, terrible every year. Missouri the team that we play this week goes on the road to UGA, 16 and a half point spread. You and I both picked UGA to cover. UGA wins easily, could be one word. It was like a boa constrictor slowly grinding Missouri out of the game. Missouri was Alabama. technically in this game, but they never had any kind of offense to threaten. 27 nothing. Yeah, I didn't wins. want to watch any of this. I watched them just because I knew that we'd be playing Missouri, but extremely boring game from every respect, opposite of some of those Really fantastic games that were going on elsewhere around the country. So let's talk about Missouri. You ready? And, and if you're paying attention in that Georgia game, the note for me was Fromm was abysmal. Basically a 50% completion rate, 
struggled mightily on third down. They really could not pass the ball very effectively. And spoiler alert, Missouri played a ton of cover one press man. So if that wants to make you feel sick about Georgia, go it watch does. that game on film like I had to do and make yourself sick watching UGA struggle mightily against Missouri. And oh, by the way, you know what Missouri did? They put a third defensive back on the field almost the entire game so they could play man press without giving Georgia any kind of matchup with Cager, which is what they feasted on us with. So anyway, just let that settle in. That good game plan by them really made Georgia pretty pedestrian offense. Missouri had a ton of possessions in that game, unlike us. Just couldn't do anything. Missouri is now 5-4 and four on the year. We are now 8-2. and two. We are favored by 7.5. You'll see this line move a lot. I think it's. I've seen it at 6 other places. So as of when we put this thing together, it was 7.5. We lost to them 38-17 last year. It wasn't that close. Obliterated. So they don't really have a signature win this year. They lost to Wyoming to open the season, lost to Vandy a couple weeks ago. Their five-year recruiting talent composite, 40th. Again, we're 16th. 13 returning starters, 7th on offense, 6th on defense. Their coaching staff, Barry Odom, still around his fourth year. Derek Dooley in his second year. Not as much success last year with Drew Locke. Ryan Walters, defensive coordinator, his second year. Young guy there. Okay, James, you got to watch Missouri. Tell us about the, what they like to do on offense. Well, first things first, and I want to highlight this okay. on the on the recruiting talent composite. So they have eight four-stars, eight of them. We have 38 of them, 38. Vanderbilt had four of them. So you can see these huge tiers in talent. So this is why Vanderbilt could beat a Missouri because the talent level is not that different. This is also why we shouldn't lose this game. But guess what? Games are not won by talent alone. There are other things. So on offense this year, Missouri is impossible to figure out. Kelly Bryant is the big storyline. Transfer from Clemson, winning quarterback, very successful. He's had some really good games for them. He's had some very poor games for them. He's been injured, right? He sat out the Georgia game last week. They're a run-first offense, which is different than the Drew Locke era of the past. 55% run, 45% pass. They're below average at both running and passing. They throw quite a few interceptions, and they do not have a good field goal kicker. If Bryant is not playing, who knows what's going on? And we'll talk about that in a second. But overall, on film, their offense is not impressive. They do want to spread you out. They do want to throw the ball to their running backs out of the backfield. They do have a couple of very good playmakers on this roster. They can hurt you. But as an overall, I popped the film and he said, there's something out here that really makes me afraid given what our matchups are. And the stats that they've put out there on offense would, would more or less back that up. Now let's talk about the real question. Will Kelly Bryant play? He didn't play last week. Hamstring pool, dressed, warmed up, was ready to roll. They said they didn't want to put him out there because they weren't sure he could handle all the sports-specific movements. It seems like people think he probably will play against us. Unlucky for us, lucky for Georgia. Maybe they want Georgia to win the East. I don't really know. If he can't go, you've got Tyler Powell, who's a three-star, that managed all of five first downs against Georgia. And then you have a very highly touted true freshman four-star in Connor Blazlack 
who did extremely well in the one drive he had against Georgia towards the end. 17-play drive, got stopped on fourth and goal from the three-yard line, who is definitely the much more talented passer. He's the most talented passer out of all three of these guys. There's a lot of buzz for the Missouri fans that if Bryant can't go to start, start Blazelak. But clearly they want to start Kelly Bryant. So this is the question. This is the thought for you, Alan. What are your thoughts on Bryant as a starter this year? Yeah. In this game. I think he's got to be a disappointment for them. I'm sure he's a disappointment to himself. Now, when he hit the transfer market, I was like, I, I don't know. Big deal, I guess. Now, if he ended up somewhere like Ohio State, let's say they didn't get Justin Fields, I don't think he's going to put up Justin Fields numbers. But that's the kind of system that I think he would have really flourished in. What Missouri is trying to do or what they were able to do last year with Drew Locke, he's not capable of producing those types of things. Now, Drew Locke has his own limitations. We're seeing that he's not you know, getting playing time in the NFL right now, even in situations where it seemed obvious they should play in with the Broncos. So he's not a perfect player. But Kelly Bryant doesn't threaten you in the same way that someone like Locke does. You know, he obviously plugged a huge hole for them made them more credible on offense, but he, he's not someone that scares me. Even at the height of his play, I don't think they're creative enough to really maximize what he could do for them. You know, pretty pedestrian all over the place. So, I mean, that was a big news story that he transferred there. I think it was a good get for them, but I don't think it was a revolutionary thing. I think he probably valued himself too highly, and they probably valued him too highly. Yeah, wrong fit, I think. And I think we thought this was curious when it happened. This is a guy who's played on an uber-talented team, was a good game manager, not a great passer, good with his legs. He needed to go to a team that more fit that kind of profile, where his veteran experience could have helped like a team on the cusp that did not have a quarterback play well. Missouri was very curious. I think disappointing is the right word. They have laid some colossal eggs when he started inexplicable offensive performances that make no sense. And then due to the injury that he's been out, they've really struggled since then they're certainly better off with him so that will be an interesting storyline as far as what florida needs to prepare for when missouri does get to the red zone they love and i mean love to throw the ball to their all-world tight end number 81 redshirt junior albert and i we looked at albert brown's name last year and it's almost impossible but it's albert know, o yeah albert o right but it's a long african name it's really pretty awesome it was like okum wabunum but Six touchdowns in the season. He got hurt last year against us, which ended his season. He will almost certainly be an NFL tight end. Very, very good. Huge dude. You'll see him immediately out there on the field. And that will be a big-time matchup for us to get right because they look to him in the red zone. Second day, I look at number four wide receiver, Jonathan Nance, who's a grad transfer from Arkansas. He has three touchdowns. That's nine of their like 12 touchdowns in the season are those two guys. So they exclusively look to throw those two. And then lastly, on number 34, junior running back Larry Roundtree. Uh, he catches a lot of balls out of the backfield. He they, killed us last year, Yes, too. he killed us last year. They murdered us on that. We've been so much better this year at stopping running backs, catching passes out of the backfield. That was a weakness for us last year. On film, I see no reason why we can't absolutely stuff that kind of play that they like to run, where we struggled with it mightily last year. I think the challenge for us will be to stop their tight end, Alberto. He will be a handful for us. We don't have an obvious defender to put on him. And if they do get in the red zone, look for them to target that. Yeah, who would you think you would want to put on him? You know, I I think if you were really, really going to put your best player on him size and physicality-wise, you put Elam on him. I don't think we're going to do that. We don't play that matchup specific. You certainly can't put any one of our linebackers on him. Well, Bernie 
And you could put Bernie on him. But is is he going to be healthy enough in this but game? But is Bernie healthy? So I think if you look, I mean, if you're looking just straight NFL style, you get in the red zone, you'd probably put Elam Wright on him. And you'd say, hey, you know what? I don't really care if they run the ball. They're not a great running team. I'm not going to let you pass it to this guy. I think that's what you'd see teams do. He's, a, he's our biggest, most physical corner. Uh, we're not going to do that, I can almost assure you. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see us double team him using a linebacker underneath and a safety over the top whether it be Sean Davis, who's one of our best in-air ball defenders. Who's one of our smallest safeties. Or, though. this is what I would do, right? I'd still play your best in-ball defender. You're probably going to see the dreaded situation, which you can already know what I'm going to say. Donovan Steiner. Is they're going to want to put Donovan Steiner over top, which scares me to death because this guy will eat Donovan Steiner up running routes. So whatever we do, we better get it right on him. If you're going to bracket coverage him, I'm going to put a guy that's glue on him so there's not a lot of space and let Steiner play around him. I am not going to try to go like, David Reese, Donovan Steiner combo, Ventrell Miller. I, I would hate that. I hope we don't do that. If, Mabar- if Amari Bernie's healthy in this game, this is where you'd want him. He's big enough, fast enough, obviously, to keep up with him. Now, a guy as big as Albert O could still win, you know, a jump ball. I don't know if we have anybody on the field that could, like, stop him from doing that. If he does that, more power to him. But try to keep them out of those situations where you're blanketing him enough that they don't want to look at him that they're you're almost forcing them to go elsewhere correct and that's the pro the proper way to play him is you double him in the red zone always that's what needs to be done if we let him play one-on-one against us i will be very frustrated on next week's podcast double him every single time make them go to somebody else that will affect how they play so what should we do on defense well a that's play the matchups right b this is a game where much more athletic than their players across the board outside of the tight end position which means you need to play man. Rule number one of sports is, are you athletic enough to play man? Play man defense. We definitely are. Also play press man defense. Kelly Bryant struggles mightily to be accurate. Tyler Powell is terrible against Georgia's man defense. Their freshman is a true freshman. Although he's touted and he's solid all game long against a team that's superior athletically, there's not going to be a lot of windows. Right, he might complete more passes, but he's not going to be able to do that over and over and over and over again. Correct. And so while you could go back to the old Grantham zone in here, uh, that's more comfortable for them. Again, I think you've seen the teams that have really done very well against them all season long have really forced them to to complete passes in tight windows. They don't want to do it. This is not the Drew Locke situation. They don't have those receivers anymore. We're more athletic. Play press, man. I am hoping the game plan we used against Vanderbilt will actually come into play here. Again, Missouri runs a lot of four and five wide sets. They love to get you in a personnel where they flex their running back out as a receiver. This is a perfect situation to run dime, Alan. They're not a good running team. They're not a very good running team. This is not a team to fear running the football. Put your three safety package in there and trust it again. Uh, I like that kind of defense. I hope it was a preview of what we're going to see. I hope we don't go back to a two linebacker, let them spread us out, have Ventrell Miller guarding Roundtree or something terrible like that. I hope we don't see that on Saturday. Right, and that might have been why we went ahead and shifted that if we liked that matchup against Missouri because obviously we didn't have to do it against Vanderbilt. But if we're going to play it against Missouri, I'm glad we played it against Vanderbilt. We'll see. That'll be interesting to note. All right, them on defense, what are they trying to do? Yeah, if you've not been paying attention to Missouri, they are an elite defense. They're top 15 in nearly every single category. Their technical weakness is their run defense. It's not weak. It's above average. But their pass defense is elite. Now, take this with a slight grain of salt. They have played basically nobody that has any kind of real offensive skill. They did just play Georgia. I would argue until I'm blue in the face that our offensive arsenal passing is much, much, much better than Georgia's. This will be the biggest test they have faced. But rest assured, they are very, very confident in their man defense. Their corners will play press man. They'll play physical and they'll play it all game long. 
Now, we mentioned that their coordinator is one of the youngest coaches in college football. Not surprisingly, what does he run, Allen? A lot of cover one man. It's a trend you're going to keep seeing. I think their defense is exceptionally sound. Even if they're not as talented, they make up for that in technique. I'm really, really excited about seeing this matchup because Kyle Trask, yet again, Allen, gets a difficult challenge as a Florida quarterback. He has had a very, very tough slate of teams to go against. He is not earning these yards against Cupcake. He's not playing Vanderbilt every single week, padding his stats. This will be hard for him. Their sophomore linebacker, number 32, Nick Bolton, eight tackles for loss and two picks in the season. He's an absolute beast. Uh, again, across the board, though their talent will not impress you, but their style and scheme will. Their safeties are smart. Their corners are smart. They will play solid, sound assignment football. So you were impressed with them, even the fact that they haven't gone against the toughest of schedules so far. Correct. On defense, yes, because they're yeah. sound and they're tough and they're going to make the window small. This is where I'm going to say there's a tremendous amount of comfort that I derive having Kyle Trask at quarterback. If you put Franks in this game, Alan, I'm going to tell you right now, I would have a tremendous amount of fear that we would have a really, really hard time scoring against them. And if Kelly Bryant plays, you're talking about a real funky game, a classic Franks game. Real funky, back and forth. Can we score on them at all? I don't even know. With Trask in there, they have their hands full. Yes, they can do things to load up, but Trask has proven to capably beat even Georgia with their elite defensive talent, running cover two man, where they have plus two defenders on us, Allen, successfully moving the ball. But this will be a tough matchup. Don't sleep on Missouri's defense. They're very, very good. They messed up Jake Fromm last week at home in a game where they were running the ball pretty well. He still could never really get on track passing. So that's going to be very interesting. Therefore, Allen, if we know that Missouri is going to run a ton of cover one man, what should we be doing this week? Man beaters, man beaters, man beaters. Practice your man beating coverage like we worked on with Grimes with that rub route. With Pitts, we got to be running that 60 or 70% of our plays ought to have those natural downfield rubs. Missouri's pass rush is not, surprisingly, not that great. Typically, they thrive on that. They're not generating a lot of sacks. They're a very solid defense. We should have enough time to get these downfield passes working. If we can create some rubs with our athletes and get some space, we can score big play touchdowns on Missouri. That's what man defense does. It gives up big plays. It will be fascinating to see if last week was sort of a down payment on what we might do against Missouri this week. It's very possible that it was. That'll be really interesting. Uh, this is going to be a challenge. I think Missouri losing to Vandy has kind of thrown everybody off. They're, sent, they're still a decent team, especially with Kelly Bryant at quarterback. And as you said, their defense is solid. We have the capability of beating it, but we'll see if the ghosts of Columbia, Missouri continue to haunt us. Penalties, they heavily favor us. That's fun to say. Turnover margin, same ratio. Injuries, a little tough to say. Jeremiah Moon still out, I believe. Brad Stewart, theoretically available from gleaming what they said at the press conference. Uh, everyone else may or may not play. Zuniga probably will play. Again, this is a Dan Mullen injury report, so if you hear other stuff, who knows? We don't know. This is tough to speculate in this arena. All right, James, let's talk about our keys to the game. This is a weird game every year. If you look at the stats over the last five years, they have blown us out so often. No matter how good we are or they are, these have been some really lopsided scores. I predicted a loss for us at every time we've done a schedule look ahead because I just don't know that we can win there. This is a noon kick. 
So 11 a.m. out there, I guess. Potentially cold. We'll see. I don't know. Every time I start to feel like we should win this game, those memories of getting pants by Missouri out in Columbia rear their ugly head. Yeah, a chance for us to kind of exercise those demons and these feelings of Missouri just doing what you said, beating us like a drum. And again, if we had Franks at quarterback or Emory at quarterback, I'd be really nervous about this game. My sole confidence relies in our strength versus their strength. The reason this game is 7.5 points and not 15 points, Allen, is because we have no running game. Vegas clearly looks at matchups. That's largely what they evaluate their their um, their predictions on in season, plus past games, past personnel. We cannot and will not be able to run on them. And they are still a good run defense. Don't get me wrong, but they're much weaker running-wise. So most teams, their game plans are heavy run. They're running 55, 56, 57% of the time against them. That just cannot be us. It would be a total foolish move for us to try that, which means it's our strength versus their strength, and we're going to see what happens. That is my entire key to the game. I expect our defense to be able to play well enough. Which defense we get is impossible now. I could try to predict to you what Grantham's going to do. I don't. I'm hopeful. You know, we kind of got someone that wrote to us and said, hey, you've picked the Gators a couple times now to cover the spread on these difficult games. You guys aren't rosy. You know, what's the analysis that's leading to that? And I said, well, we were hopeful there in a while in the middle of the season that Grantham would do some things based upon film and we made our picks based upon what we thought we would do on film. And now we're learning that Grantham does this, so we'll make our picks accordingly. Well, here I am, Alan, saying Grantham threw me a curveball. Yeah, exactly. I don't really know what to do. So what I'm going to do as a caveat is I'm going to I'm gonna say that what Grantham did last week was not some sort of anomaly, but that he actually is going to maybe move more into that. And therefore, I do expect us to play some more aggressive man defense. I don't expect this Missouri team to be able to score more than 13 points on us in this game. I know we're going to score more than 13. I know we're going to. We scored on half of our possessions against Georgia, basically. Barely had the ball. We are going to have the ball at least 10 or 11 or 12 times. It means we're going to get to at least 20 points, Alan. So the key to the game is our strength versus their strength. We can't give up pick sixes. We can't give them points on offense. So that's it. Our strength versus their strength. Do not give them points via turnovers. We've been very, very good at not doing that pretty much all year long post the Auburn game. This game is a weird game to handicap because you're trying to imagine this Missouri offense with Kelly Bryant or without Kelly Bryant. And it feels like you almost have to take like a medium version of this. Maybe he plays so half the time. So it's hard baking into that score um, or prediction or talking about the game in general. Even if he is healthy, I don't think he's going to be the, the dynamic Kelly Bryant that he potentially was at Clemson when he's running the ball. Maybe he is. Maybe they've kept him out long enough and they saved him for this game because they think they can win. Who knows? So I'm going to talk about the keys this game as if he's healthy but not optimally healthy. And now if that goes up or down, that will that would affect you know how this game goes, obviously. So if he's less mobile, you have more chances to affect him in the pocket. If we have Zuniga and Grenard going in this game, that seems like that would benefit us. A lot. I I loved what we showed against Vanderbilt. I love the dime packages. I love the personnel usage, moving Marco Wilson to star. If we play optimally, it's going to be really hard for them to score, as you said. And I do think that we will score. So I'm going to go ahead and give us a little score prediction here. So I didn't give a lot of keys to victory. Most of it, I think, is, again, eliminating some of the ghosts 
of games passed. So if we're able to come out and compete, like we said, we have a big trust in Kyle Trask, still limiting a little bit. I'm going to go 28-13. So that's still a big win. We covered the spread in a big way, but not a dominant, dominant effort like a team that if you beat Vanderbilt that badly and they lost to Vanderbilt, so somewhere in that middle ground there for me. The weather in this game should be pretty decent. Right now I'm looking it up on Saturday. It should be a high of 48, sunny. It's cold. It's our first cold weather game. today. That's, not, that's fine football playing weather. Totally fine. Today, for example, in Columbia, it's a high of 23 and a low of 9. So thankfully we are not playing in that weather. That, so that feels Again, nice. predicting the weather, though, we're here on Monday. You're on Monday. Saturday could Things be a little could different. could change. But hopefully right now it doesn't look That's like... That's what we're taking into account, right? Epic, yeah, yeah, epic situation. If we get 48 and clear, that should not affect us. Great throwing the football weather. Great catching the football weather. It's really a perfect day to go toss the rock around. I think there's a lot of situations where we blow them out. I love your score prediction, Alan. That was right in my hemisphere, as you heard me say. I'm going to pick us to continue this sort of surge of offense that we have because I don't expect their offense to convert a lot of third downs i'm hoping we get 13 14 15 possessions and if we do i think we're gonna be in the 30s so i'm gonna take florida 35 missouri 13 uh, i think that that would be a fantastic win to get the monkey off our for back. sure big one would prove yet again that trask was able to move the ball without a running game with a subpar offensive line against a really good defensive unit now this could get sideways real fast if we can't pass the ball well against them if we struggle if, if heggy can't go and now we've got White in there, and White is struggling. There's ways this could go against us, but I see way more probabilities that we cover this 7.5-point spread than we don't. And I see a lot of ways in which we just blow them out. Why? Because their season history indicates that's what's been happening to them. They've lost to some teams that we are much better than by two or three scores. This is not abnormal for them. If you've not followed them, they're a kooky, funky, weird team. They are playing at home. I think they will be amped up to play us, and I think they'll be confident to play us because of the recent history. So I hope we get off to a good start. Right. This is a, again, I, I made this pick. I feel like if you just did this in a vacuum and I wasn't aware of what happened previously, I probably would have even predicted a bigger score. I think that spread would have been higher out of Vegas. But, man, I'm really, really hoping that we show up here on Monday with a win and, like you said, exercise some of those demons. Yeah, it should be exciting. Let's move into our Week 12 National Games. Again, brought to you by Manscaped. I won't read all the stats off yet again because you've already heard them, but I will tell you that you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code GOGATERS at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com. They have razors, trimmers, lotions, tonics, whatever you want. It's all there. Check it out. Again, Alan and I never see who buys what or anything like that. It's perfectly confidential. And with that... Time to walk you through the Week 12 National Games. There are some good ones this week. Indiana heads on the road to Penn State. If you've not paid attention, Indiana is a good football team this year. Yeah, I want you to give them the credit here. Number 24, Indiana. The first time in the top 25, I think, 3,000 years. So yeah, there it is. There. It's been a long time. And they are on the road against the Penn State team, licking their wounds. Penn State favored by just 14. Man, this this is super tempting to take Indiana here. I do think Penn State is capable of winning this game by 14 at home. So that's going to lead me to take Penn State. Indiana is a great story this year. I I love what they're doing. I don't know that Penn State is going to, I don't know, cough up another 
upset loss. And I think ultimately this game ends up at around 14. I think it'll be pretty close through the first half, though. Yeah, could be. This feels like a lean towards Penn State. This is not a gut feeling, though. I'm going to go with Indiana because I think they're riding really, really high. I think Penn State emotionally still has a lot to play for. This is not like they're deflated. Their season's over. They do play better at home. 14 seems just a little bit too high. If it was 10, I'd have been on Penn State. All right, Wisconsin, number 15, Wisconsin, on the road against Nebraska. Scott Frost, Nebraska team. Most Gator fans happy we didn't hire Scott Frost. I still feel like you just don't know. He's in a real tough situation out there. Wisconsin favored by 13 and a half on the road. I think Nebraska's been building towards this game. I think it's going to be close. I'm tempted to say Nebraska outright, but I'll definitely take them to cover that. I'm taking fairly a, large points. Yeah, I'm right. taking Nebraska on the points. That seems too big with the way Wisconsin plays. There's not a huge talent difference between Wisconsin and Nebraska. Nebraska's defense is not good. They have been scoring on people. I think Vegas looks at that and says Wisconsin's defense is pretty good. Nebraska's defense is terrible. That's going to get to 14. I'm going to take Scott Frost there, though, to get in tight. Michigan State, really on a downward trend here, Alan. At Michigan. Michigan, though, maybe curiously only favored by 14. Well, this has traditionally been a very tight game. Michigan State winning a lot of these games that they shouldn't against more talented Michigan teams. That's probably reflective in this line. But Michigan State's in free fall right now. They've been so bad the last few weeks, so I have to take Michigan. I'm taking Michigan as well. I think Michigan's been on the uptrend. I think Michigan State's in the downtrend. I'm going to take momentum there and and take Michigan. This game, one of the most interesting ones of the week for me. Number 21, Navy, at number 16, Notre Dame. Notre Dame favored by nine. I like Navy in this. I like them to keep it close for sure. Uh, Navy's a funky team to play, so I'm going to go... With the midshipmen there. Yeah, it's hard to trust Notre Dame with these bigger spreads, and I'm, I'm with you. Totally aligned here. We're making a lot of the same picks. I'm taking Navy as well. Wake Forest. This is the ACC matchup of the year, by the way. Are you ready? At ready. number three, Clemson. There are there are only, there is only, sorry, is only one ranked ACC team. It is Clemson. Clemson is still my favorite to win a national title, which I know most of you think is crazy. Clemson favored over the number two team in the ACC, Allen, by a smooth 32. Uh, Clemson was on fire I think coming off some of those disrespect rankings as they saw them being number five in the um, the committee's first rankings you know not playing well but I think they cool off just a little bit to keep this under 32 Wake Forest keeps it close for a while yeah it's just crazy to think that a major power five league is to the point where the number two team and they might not really be the number two team, but they are this year. They're, I mean, they're close enough. They're this year. You can't find another one for me. Miami? Nope. Florida State? Though, no. I mean, not really. No way. Not with the results. So I'm going to take Clemson here. I think Clemson, again, is the best team in the country. It will be tough for them to flip a switch come playoff time, but I think they're getting better each and every week. I think they're super talented. I think they have a defense that can play with LSU. I think Ohio State has a defense that can play with LSU. I'm going to get a little spoiler alert out here, Alan, but I am really looking forward to the playoff matchups this year. They are tasty. In some years, you get like terrible defenses versus Alabama's only good defense. There are some great, great matchups that could be had this season. Number five, UGA. On the road against Auburn. Again, that all Gator fans should be tuning into. Georgia has to lose their last two games. Georgia only favored by three against Gus Malzahn. What do you got? Man, this is tough to pick because Auburn... Georgia's been so weird the last couple of years. I mean, you had Auburn beating Georgia and then losing to them in the SEC title game in that same season. 
has Kirby Smart figured out Gus Malzahn? I don't know. I don't know that Auburn has the kind of running back that would lead them to the upset, but they are the agent of chaos. This is totally a gut pick here. I'm going to go Auburn. Me too. I love that you're doing that. And that's not with my heart. I I think that Bo Nix is absolutely not good enough to get this done. But I think that Auburn's defense is going to make it nearly impossible for Georgia to score more than 17 points. And if that happens, that's the perfect chaos recipe for a home game against your big rival. I like that recipe. It's going to be fun. Number seven, Minnesota at number 18, Iowa. Iowa favored by three in this game. A nod to how tough it is to play there. What do you got? I don't think Iowa can score enough points in this game to keep pace with Minnesota. Now, again, there's a big chance for emotional letdown. I'm not expecting Minnesota to blow them out, but three points is is too low. I have to take Minnesota. This feels like a classic game that Iowa wins, but them giving up three whole points in a game like this, that seems impossible to me. So because of the point situation, I'm taking Minnesota. I think Iowa will win this game. Number 10, Oklahoma. 10 points favorites on the road against undefeated Baylor. This is really fun. Uh, Baylor's been stingy a lot of the year. So 10 points is a little high. Oklahoma obviously has not been their usual selves in terms of their offensive production. But I think they match up well with Baylor here. I'm going to take Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma's defense had not generated a turnover in like a million games, Alan, until they picked off the two-point play ending the game last week. They cannot expect to be beating really good teams without generating some turnovers uh, on defense. I don't know what to think of this line. Baylor keeps surprising me. Like, go look up their roster. They're not insanely talented. Just a couple years ago, they were in the midst of a huge scandal. It's unbelievable what Matt Rule has done there. I think this scare last week from Iowa State to Oklahoma maybe scared them straight. And I think Baylor is is in survival mode. I think this is a ripe situation for Oklahoma to go on the road and get a huge win and cement themselves as a playoff contender. Outsider, albeit, but to get themselves back into the race. They're kind of slipped to the point now where they do not control their own destiny playoff-wise anymore anyway, I feel like. Right, well, those results, Kansas State and Iowa State, those are two tough teams, but and they haven't looked as good as you would want them to in either of those games. Correct. So they got to step it up now. I wouldn't be surprised at anything. That line's high enough that I'm not like, oh, yeah, Oklahoma's got this. But you know, I I feel like I have to take them there. Yes, agreed. All right, UCLA, Chip Kelly, fresh of a bye. They control their own destiny. This is the game for them. They go on the road to number eight, Utah. Utah's favored by 21 over the surging fighting Chip Kellys. Man, 21 is really high because there's a thread here where UCLA is actually able to move the ball, and this game is really close because I don't expect Utah to be able to light it up offensively. But I think Utah is going to be able to stymie them a good amount. I'm going to take Utah still. I'm going to ride momentum just like Virginia Tech. UCLA is riding something special right now. They're on fire. They're playing really well. 21 points is a lot. Utah is definitely the better team top to bottom, especially talent-wise. But let's see if Chip Kelly's got some magic left. Number 22, Texas, back in the rankings at Iowa State, unranked Iowa State, difficult, feisty Iowa State. Iowa State favored by six and a half. Wow, what respect for the clones. Texas, underdogs at Ames. Man, you know I love the clones. Texas, I don't know what I'm going to get from them. 
and then this Iowa State coming off of just a heartbreaker against Oklahoma. This is low enough that I think Iowa State's going to win, so I'll go ahead and take them. Yeah, this game is tough to predict. I've learned that you do not want to bet on teams going into Iowa State and coming out with a win. But six and a half points, we've talked about Texas a lot. If they lose, it's really close. So I'm going to take Texas in that six and a half point spread. All right, last game of the week, USC up, down, sideways, all over the place, USC, favored by six on the road against Cal, who suddenly found an offense last week after not having one for weeks. Man, these lines are so tough because they, I mean, this is what they're supposed to do. They put them right at the point where I would feel comfortable. But I'm going to take Cal on this one at home, USC, a little up and down. Man, I do not feel comfortable with that at all. Stay very far away from this. Yeah, you don't want to touch. Neither of these teams are predictable, even remotely. I'm going to take USC. I feel like when they do play well, and if they do win, it will be by more than six. And if they don't, they'll lose. So I have no idea which one's going to show up, but I'll take the upside there. All right. Any other items before we close out the podcast? I mean, this is a great moment in college football. I love these late games against top teams. We've been really blessed with an abundance of them. So even though we are in kind of a weird part of our schedule with Vanderbilt, Missouri, although you know, definitely not checking off Missouri as a win. So much fun stuff going on in college football. So love college football. It giveth, it taketh away. But it's it's a cool thing to have going on in our lives that makes the fall so special. Yeah, it really does. And it's fun that we're still at least a part of the conversation. Again, as a Gator fan, in case you totally don't know, Georgia plays at Auburn, then home against Texas A&M. You need to be watching that Georgia-Auburn game, rooting for Auburn as hard as you can, if for no other reason than pure entertainment. That sets up next weekend, where Florida has a bye, and you're in front of your television, and you are watching a super important Texas A&M-Georgia game, rooting as hard as you can for a chance to go to the SEC title game. That's what makes being a fan fun. It all starts this weekend, and thankfully, we're at least in the picture. Are we upset we lost to Georgia? Of course, but we still have a shot. It's still fun to root for. For most of us, football is really just entertainment, and we get a chance here in November to be a part of the national picture. Indeed. And we get a chance to exercise some demons going on the road against Missouri. But, and hard transition here, Alan, before I forget, before we close the pot out, a quick discussion, or mention, I should say, I want to play an audio clip from last week where we had our guest on, Justin Seitz, our inside basketball picker. He's been super accurate, fantastic basketball guest. We lost against Florida State on Sunday in basketball. Very, very frustrating. A lot of commentary on Mike White out there. Justin came on the show and asked me a question. Let's play this clip, and then we're going to have a brief conversation kind of setting a narrative. This is not at all to roast Justin. More of to focus on what the other major sport in all of our Gator fan lives will be facing as they begin a season as Florida football winds down. You know, some people still question Mike White and his ability as a young coach. Um, even the guy sitting across from me in a Facebook post January 5th said, it is officially time, James, to question Mike White's ability as a top-level basketball coach. Offensive structure, lineups, yikes. Do you stand by this? I do stand by it, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is what this year does. And you know, If we were doing a, a podcast on basketball, that's where we would start, Justin, is looking at what kind of offense does he run? How efficient are we? Are we getting the, the personnel decisions correct? Are we playing the right types of defense? 
So that, Alan, sets the table for the story of what is going to be Mike White and Gator basketball this season. Is it his coaching? Should we press the panic button early? I want to get your thoughts. It's very clear to the listening audience that I pressed it last January. I'm still on it. I do not think he's a good X's and O's coach. I do not think he knows what he's doing when it comes to basketball schematics, which are not complicated, as Justin said last week. But we're lost that was a really bad loss at home to Florida State. Mick Hubert was caught on a hot mic at the end, basically saying, we're not going to be able to win anything with Nimhart at point guard. He's a great staller. But then again, he's doing exactly what the coaches are asking him to do. So what are your feelings? I think you have a little bit of different opinion. I think you're still hanging on. I think I'm over here saying this is not good. Mike White can't coach. He needs to hire a coach to help him. He needs to be at Orgeron, is how I feel about Mike White. Where are you? Not so far out of there. We're still incorporating a lot of new pieces, and we've shot the ball horrifically, horrifically. Noah Locke, who was excellent as a freshman, has basically been locked in a freezer. He's so ice cold. He's basically like 2 of 13, went like 1 of 10 overall on Sunday I don't expect him to be that bad or Trey Mann to shoot poorly or Nimhard to shoot as poorly. We couldn't get anything going. Nobody played well. And I hate that that was against Florida State because I hate, hate losing to them. One of the worst things in my sports world right now is the fact that we've lost them six years in a row. It crushes me. I don't expect us to play that badly all year long. We turned ended up being a tournament team last year, turned it around, started you know, kind of ground out some success. I think we have still have the pieces to be a successful offensive team, but – if we shoot that poorly, of course, we're going to be abysmal. I don't expect us to continue shooting that poorly. If we do, we're done. Yeah, Mike White 0-5 against Leonard Hamilton. Most of those games are double-digit wins by Florida State. This Florida State team lost five of its eight top scorers. Brutal, brutal loss. Most of the national media was very quick to recognize what a bad loss this was. This did not happen in a, in a vacuum where no one saw it. Very... Very curious result. I think a lot of people will be paying very close attention to how this team is handled. We are loaded with talent. It did not look like, Allen. the game on Sunday was necessarily the players so much as what they were being told to do. Not a lot of off-ball movement. Not a lot of good looks in the offense. Not a lot of tempo. Not a lot of flow. And for the first time in a long time, we looked as, if not more, athletic than Florida State's team. That did not help us. So... Remains to be seen. We went up just a little commentary on basketball, which we will do. Longtime listeners know at the end of these podcasts here in the fall, we'll chime in where necessary. I want to be excited about this year in basketball. And Justin, I'm sure, wanted me to pass this note on to you. He has revised his pick already after seeing the Florida State game. Justin is a huge basketball fan, and it broke his heart the way we played. And he has now revised the Sweet 16 as our ceiling after just seeing the Florida State game. So, a lot of questions, a lot of confusion out there. We hope that Mike White gets it right. Me personally, I think he's at Orgeron. I think we need to hire some good X's and O's coach to help him. He's an interesting spot, Alan. When you recruit as well as he's recruiting, you don't want to get rid of those guys. Uh, I think you want to try to make it work like LSU has done. We'll see what happens. A lot of basketball left to be played. That's it for us. We look forward to seeing all of you next week after what hopes to be a big victory, as Alan and I both predicted, over Missouri. Alan can, br- can breathe a huge sigh of relief getting the Missouri monkey off of his back and getting a chance to view them in a more appropriate light as a gentle cat 
and not a fearsome tiger that is tearing apart gators. We'll see you all next week. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.